Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Flashes, huh? What's your favorite scary movie? Um, <laughs> not that one. <laughs> Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking four movies in one. We're talking Shoot the Boot. And we're talking really, really, really fake boobs. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking stupendous tits and perfect nipple placement, baby. Oh, God. <laughs> I, <laughs> I cannot, everyone. Um, for a first time for our podcast, we are covering a Friday the 13th movie that is not taking place on a week with a Friday the 13th. Um, this would, of course, be the 2009 remake, which has a reception that people think about when they think of this movie. Sure. Yeah, it's the 15th <laughs> anniversary. So we thought, why not celebrate this? Okay, I, I, I take like offense to your like ellipses question mark statement on that. <laughs> I, I like this movie. It's, but you know, we'll talk about it. But like, it really grinds my gears when fans mm-hmm. of this franchise hate on this movie for like leaps in logic or like stupid character things or whatever. And I'm like, it's a Friday the 13th movie. <laughs> Absolutely. And here's the thing. I said it because I thought it was funny. I actually think that this movie is fine. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's that bad. The weird thing is, and we will unpack this because I think we're going to have a lot of conversations about who made this and the tone and who it's really intended for. Yeah. But I can't help but wonder if it's because this is a certain generation's Friday the 13th, right? We only got jason x in the early aughts and mm-hmm. then we get this one and it's like this is the one that i think for a lot of folks it was the first time they ever had the chance to see it theatrically whereas i know many people who fucking hate this movie so much so that i made some of them rewatch it and like they wound up liking it on the second viewing because it was like sure. 10 years distance but at the time i remember and i think that probably contributed to its bad well quote-unquote bad box office once we get mm-hmm. past that opening weekend 
Absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So <laughs> let's bring in our guest who's waiting in the wings. Uh, everyone, he is the writer and director of the queer horror short Slasher, that's S-L-A-S-H-R, uh, about the horrors of gay dating apps. Uh, actually currently streaming on Deku right now, the queer streaming app. Uh, please welcome Amir Moini. Hello. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Welcome to this movie. <laughs> See, now you just did it. Well, okay, I'm doing it because, I mean, you picked this movie, and I'm curious why. Yeah, I mean, I think you gave me a couple options, and this one definitely stood out to me. And I hate to say it, but the number one reason is because I just remember Willa Ford was <laughs> wakeboarding uh, topless in the film, and I was like, this is such mm-hmm. an iconic moment that, like, now I want to rewatch this whole movie. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's literally the only reason I picked it. And then I didn't remember anything about it since I saw it in the theaters besides that one scene. Like, that was the only thing that stayed in my memory. Oh, so it really that's made an impression funny. on you. <laughs> I mean, her tits did. The, the funniest thing was, so often Trace and I both manage the horror queers email, but Amir, it was mostly you and I setting up the dates and organizing the details. And when you wrote back, yeah, I want to talk about Willa Ford in this movie. And I said, oh, yeah, Trace won't know who that is. No, hey, <laughs> I don't. I, I know who she is because of this movie. I had no idea about her singing career, but my husband, who is a very big music gay, did. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to be bad is like and I very famous song from the TRL days. Did you ever see the music mm-hmm. video or anything? I love how you're like TRL days. Like I watch, I've never seen an episode of TRL. What? <laughs> I didn't watch MTV growing up. I didn't, I didn't care about, why did I want to watch music videos? <laughs> yeah, he was, he's just not a music gay. It's a very odd thing. I'm a video game gay. Do you play video games, Amir? You know, the only video game I've ever played in my whole life is Miss Pac-Man, but I'm like very mm-hmm. good at it to the point where when I do it in an arcade, I usually place in the top 10. But I've never played anything else in my whole life. The reaction that you had to me having never seen TRL is the reaction I just had to what you just said. (laughs) (laughs) So what we're saying is we're finding common ground. I just never have allowed myself to open the door video games because I feel like it would just take all the time. That's like the same reason I don't have TikTok. Like I just don't want to even like entertain it. Yeah, that's how I feel. That's 100% how I feel. I'm like, I would love to. I just do not have the time. But gentlemen, that means we're getting old. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe also that. Oh, you know, the kids are doing it. I don't have time. I will never have a TikTok. It's not going to happen. But also, just yeah, not only learning it, but like the work involved in producing those videos. No, hell no. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I think my grave will end up saying he didn't have the time. Right. (laughs) He was busy. Are you a fan of this franchise? I am, actually, immensely. Okay. I mean, I love, obviously, the first one. It's super iconic, and mm-hmm. I've seen all of them. I, I actually, since watching the, re-watching this for the podcast, I'm now on this journey of re-watching all of them from the beginning. So I've watched the first and half of the second one, and I'm, I'm planning to go all the way, all the way through. So. Based nice. off of memory alone, can you tell me, like, I don't know, top three entries in the franchise for you, even though you haven't seen some of them in a while? Ooh, I mean, yes, the first one for sure. I remember loving the fourth one. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Yeah. I think I think there were a lot of, like, cute, like, <laughs> naked guys in it, too. Like, I, <laughs> like I have this, like, memory of always wanting to watch the fourth one, like, for that reason. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Two is good for that one as well. And I love Freddy versus Jason. Like, I just think it's it's fun. It's campy. It's so over the top. Um, it's interesting to, like, mesh two worlds together. 
-hmm. So like that one was really fun. Yeah, that's like I I honestly don't remember a lot of them though. Like I I I remember not liking Jason Takes Manhattan or um what was the one after that that came came out in the early nineties? Jason Goes to Hell. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that one I didn't like that one really either, to be honest. I would recommend. I'm only saying this because I'm so Joe is actually Joe. Do you want to do you want to say your piece on this? <laughs> So I like the off-kilter ones because they're unusual. So I'm actually quite a big fan of Jason Goes to Hell because it's very different from many of the other entries. But I also don't love this franchise. Like, this isn't my baby. Mm, okay. I mean, yeah, and that makes sense. Like, even in Scream, it was exciting for it to take place in a new city and, and not be in a small <clears> town. Like, it's like kind of seeing, like, you know, characters out of their element, if you will, like in a different yeah. location. So, well, but to, to your point, though, about Jason Takes Manhattan, you know, yes, we can bitch about how with Jason on a boat for the whole time. And it's only in Manhattan, quote unquote, Vancouver for like the last 20 minutes. I would argue Jason Takes Manhattan is a boring film, whereas uh, Jason Goes to Hell, which I... I don't think is good, it's but I understand. It's not a good movie, but it's interesting. But And it's interesting and entertaining in a way that Manhattan is not. So wait, yeah. Joel, based on your logic, do you like um, Jason X then? Because like he's in space. So ironically enough, I... I liked it when I first saw it. And then when Trace and I went back and covered it for the podcast in our first or second year, I was like, ooh, she's a messy bitch. Like, there's some really fun stuff in here. And there's a bunch of really just, we didn't have the budget. This looks like a really lo-fi kind of sci-fi show. And there's certain things where I just, I wish they had have had the ability to do what they clearly wanted to do on that film. Mm, okay. Yeah, I have to watch yeah. that one again. It's a movie where what I like about it, I really, really, really like about it. But there mm -hmm. is a lot of stuff that drags it down, specifically a whole like 15 minute chunk in the middle where all the army people get killed. That's so fucking boring. <laughs> yeah, nobody cares about them. <laughs> yeah. But OK, well, let's talk about how this movie came to be. And yeah, a.k.a. the last <laughs> theatrical one that we have had. That's this wild to think about joking. that it's been that long. And it, it right? wasn't a bomb like box office wise. I know you mentioned like it dips, but. It made back all of its money. If you look, like it, oh, it sure. made what, like a hundred oh. million worldwide. No, don't don't worry. We, we've got like th this movie. I have to believe that Paramount or the Sean Cunningham area. They like, I, like, I could have done a deep dive into the rights issues with this movie. And no. honestly, it is <laughs> that would that's Please a whole no. pod. Well, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. That's not like an episode on the remake. You know? Yeah. Honestly, tell you what, folks, I will put a link to former guest Lindsay Travis's article because she keeps it updated every time there's a new issue with the rights. She goes out and updates this one giant thing piece and it's great and it goes into way more depth than we would ever care to know. Oh, and she's actually a lawyer, too. So she knows her yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but OK, so with this one, so following the release of 2006's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning, um, Joe, you Ooh. love that one, don't you? Which one is that? Is that the Matt Bomer one or is it the good one? It's the Matt Bomer one. <laughs> OK, so it's no, I don't. The like good that one, one is the Jessica Biel one, in my opinion. Hell oh, 100%. Yeah, that's the good one. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> Oh, it's a five-star film. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the beginning comes out. It doesn't do super well. I mean, I think it makes its money back, but it's not like the big critical success. I'm sorry. It's not the big commercial success that that first film was. Mm -hmm. So New Line's Toby Emmerich approaches Platinum Dunes, the, the production company that does all of these horror remakes of the odds. You know, Texas Chainsaw, yes. Amityville, The Hitcher, um, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but he's like hey i want to like let's capture lightning in a bottle twice and let's do the jason Voorhees legacy and so 
Platinum Dunes producers Andrew Form, Brad Fuller, and, of course, Michael Bay uh, mm-hmm. agreed to commit to the project, but they faced a rights entanglement that took, according to Fuller, nearly a year and a half to sort out amongst Paramount, New Line, and Sean Cunningham's Crystal Lake Entertainment. Brief thing, New Line only owned the sequels, not the first film, and Paramount right. retained the rights to the title Friday the 13th, which is why um, Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X don't have Friday the 13th, because those are the New Line ones. That's that interesting. Have. I didn't know that. Yes. And of course, we'll see this play out as we move towards Brian Fuller's uh, Crystal Lake TV show. So, you know, certain characters ineligible because we don't have the rights for them and so on. Yeah, it's wild. Just a tangled web that has only gotten worse in the yes. in the fifteen years since this came out. Well, because there's so much fucking money on the table. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if, if they can figure it out, right now nobody's making money. So so much money and so many stupendous tits. Just <laughs> <laughs> just waiting. The money and the tits, stupendous and waiting to be grabbed up. Yeah. You know what though? A Brian Fuller Friday Thirteenth property. We're gonna get dicks in that show. Oh my god. <laughs> Dixon butt, yes. Dixon butt. <laughs> but, okay, uh, skipping over all the negotiations, once they had all agreed on a similar vision for the next Jason film, Paramount executives gave Platinum Doom producers a license to use anything from the original films, including the title. Paramount was given the rights to distribute the film internationally, whereas New Line retained the U.S. distribution rights. Right, Okay. I'm glad that you like Freddy vs. Jason Amir, because the same writers who wrote that wrote this movie. Yeah, hmm. I mean, you can kind of tell. Like, it, there's definitely like parallels. I would say to some degree. I would agree. Um, so yeah, Par- Platinum Dunes hired Damian Shannon and Mark Swift, uh, the duo behind Freddy vs. Jason. They watched all of the movies to figure out just a couple questions: Do they want to stay within the confines of what had already been established for what Jason does predominantly in the first three or four films? Well, that was actually the main thing. Um, but they settled mm-hmm. on a Jason that doesn't necessarily <laughs> do anything you haven't seen before, but the way he does those things is different. And I am not making fun of anyone who is like takes a huge issue with that. I just think it's really funny to see fan reaction to something silly like the tunnels. <laughs> mm-hmm. The tunnels. I'm just like very, logistically, very like, did he dig those himself? Did he use TaskRabbit? Like... How did we create these tunnels? Like, I'd like to know a little bit more of the backstory there. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a 29-year gap between the prologue and the film proper, so we had 29 years to dig this shit. Yeah, that's true. So wait, this assumes that none of the sequels happened, right? It's just the first one Mm -hmm. on this? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that I saw that was very different from how he operates in other films is there's one point where he starts just full-on running. Yeah, And I was yeah. like, I don't think I've ever seen Jason run before. And I'm actually <laughs> having a reaction to this. Oh, Amir, I'm going to stop you because he absolutely runs in part two. <laughs> oh, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm only halfway through. <laughs> there we go. See, it's been a while. It's been a while. You're forgetting. Yeah, I just basically... don't remember him running. I don't know. Like, it was weird to see him run. So He has the ability. So he runs in two for sure. I think he might have running moments in three and four. He doesn't full on become a slow paced zombie until part six when he gets resurrected. Okay, so I'm I'm definitely right. wrong then. But... Nevertheless, <laughs> you're forgiven because most people remember him as just a shambling behemoth. Mm-hmm. Right. If you think about it, for most of the films, that's what he has been. And especially the most recent batch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I only point out, too, because, I mean, not only did we cover that last year, Joe, but, like, the scariest shot in that movie mm-hmm. is one of Jason running towards a window. It is true. Yeah. Yeah. But 
What Foreman Fuller were looking to achieve was a film that returned to the slasher film fun and to pull Platinum Dunes out of the doom and gloom of their previous efforts, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. Like, I mean, they say the Amityville horror, which I guess is doom and gloom, but... It is, yeah. It, when you go back and rewatch it, there just isn't a lot of fun to be had in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I would consider this movie... Like, I guess it's fun to some degree, but... I don't know, like, I I actually felt like the dialogue was a little bit... The way that the characters were talking, it just felt like no one actually would talk like that in real life. And it just felt like they were like caricatures almost versus like actual people. Well, that's what makes it fun. I guess that's their version of fun, but I don't know, like... (laughs) You can have, to me, like, movies like I Know What You Did Last Summer or Scream, Mm -hmm. it's like... Those feel more realistic, but they also feel fun, right? Like, it's like a duality that they could have, whereas this just felt like, let's just create characters a little bit. Well, Mm. they intentionally... So so Shannon and Swift said they didn't want the characters to know Jason's name or become what they considered, um, quote-unquote, the Scooby-Doo cliche where it's a bunch of kids trying to figure something out. They also wanted to distance themselves from self-referential slasher films like Scream and to give the film a more gritty, more 1980s feel that had been lost in the recent films. Right. Can't say they accomplished that last bit because this definitely feels very 2009. It does not feel... (laughs) Yeah, it does not have that antiquated sort of retro vibe to it at all. But to your point, Amir, I mean, like, put this right next to that 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, which I think is just a bleak, bleak piece of work. This, I wouldn't call this a bleak film. This, to me, is a quote-unquote fun slasher in that regard. Yeah, I would agree with you there for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we would disagree with your point that they are caricatures, though. I oh, mean, yeah. We'll get into it when we get into the plot, but for me, that's part of where I think they think that they're being fun, and we look at it and say, it's caricature that's verging on camp. Yeah, <laughs> like pouring uh, the oil on her chest. I'm like, oh okay, my god, the oil. That is the funniest part of the. Oh, actually, it's actually not the funniest part of the movie. But it's I... unintentionally funny, though. I don't think that's meant to be funny. I don't think it was either. I think that was supposed to be like her being sexy. And I'm just like, yeah. where did she what? get it? Logistically, Girl, no. like there's no shower. She's going to be covered in oil the whole night. Like that sucks. Mm-hmm. Who wants to do that? It's just, <laughs> it was so wild to me when she did that. <laughs> Well, and so, yeah. I mean, actually, everyone listening, so there are two cuts of this movie. There is a theatrical cut, which is about 97 minutes long, and the unrated killer cut, which is about nine minutes longer. Um, we'll point out the major difference when we get to the plot part, but there's a lot of extra, you know, little violent shots and whatever. But the bit with her oiling her tits, that mm-hmm. is extended in the killer cut. So it's even it was yeah. even longer for you and I, Joe. <laughs> there we go. More titty oil scenes. That's just what I want to see. <laughs> but... Producer form notes, uh, you look at all the horror movies of the last five or six years, so you know, 2003 to 2009, uh, you really can't count on your hands how many have been that fun slasher type horror film with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, with kids having the time of their life and paying the price for it. And it continues, it's exciting for us because we haven't done that either. We want to have some fun with these movies. We've spent a tremendous amount of time in the basement dismembering people. It was exciting for us as producers to get out to a place where there's sun, water, and again, (laughs) fun. Take a shot every time he says fun. It's like they're trying to convince themselves. And I'm not like I'm not coming down on this film because I do think there's plenty of amusing moments. But like, this is not Piranha 3D. Oh. You're talking a big game, sir. Well, OK, but I feel like then you're, you're, you're conflating fun with horror comedy. Maybe, maybe. 
Yeah, like fun is like nude wakeboarding, right? I mean, it just feels like it feels very much like a straight guy's horror movie. Like everything mm. about it. It's just like the sex scenes are so gratuitous. It's all naked women. Like Will Afford, you know, wakeboarding nude is just <laughs> ridiculous. It's like, where did that come from? Like the whole movie, I was like, yeah, a straight dude definitely wrote this movie. <laughs> Two straight dudes wrote this movie. <laughs> yeah. And to the point, Amir, I've, I, when I was doing research, I actually found behind the scenes still photographs of like them joking around and having fun on set one of those fun moments is jared padalecki shirtless amongst a whole bunch of like faux jasons and stuff and i was like he doesn't get topless in this movie so <laughs> no fuck my life i guess we not have him topless in this film like that's such a but, mess in my opinion that's the I, fun but, i want to have so i think that is and i'm not excusing this but i think that's a symptom of it being from 2009 mm-hmm. well and the two straight writers and the straight filmmakers and so on like yeah this movie i think is giving big bro energy and i don't think that that's necessarily bad if you're the intended audience but the rest of us are sitting here going like i don't know these people seem like assholes <laughs> i like the tit scenes <laughs> I mean, they're fine, Trace. I'm just saying, like... I'm slightly <laughs> uncomfortable by them myself, but that's what? fine. I don't oh know. I just, it's just awkward for me. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know why. It's because Trace is a breast man. Would you feel awkward if the guys were just dicks out for half their scenes in this movie? That would never happen, and you know it, so stop. Everyone uses a prosthetic anyways. Like, who knows if that's yeah. real or not, so... That's true. But um, they actually did consider setting this in the 80s and making this a period piece. But mm. the reason they didn't, so their reasoning is, um, it's not a straightforward remake like Texas Chainsaw or Amityville Horror. And so they didn't think there was any reason not to tell the story in 2009. It didn't have to take place in 1980. And because, again, those Texas Chainsaw movies and Amityville, they were all period pieces. They were like, we just wanted to do something that was modern. So it was different for us. I mean, as a weird asterisk, too, I discovered that if they had have said it in 1980, it would have been considered more of a remake, and then Victor Miller would have been given more financials as a result. They would have had to pay him more. And Thank logistically, you. it wouldn't make sense, right? Because, like, Jason wouldn't be... Right? Would he be an adult at that point? I don't know, like... Oh, the movies have never cared about that, Amir. It's fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a year later, and Jason is a fully grown adult. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what they would do in that case if they did that, because in the original film, like it's set in 1980, but the flashback and that, that opens the movie is in like the 50s. So mm. I assume they would just do the same thing if they set this in the 80s. So like the, the, sure. the, the opening title sequence would be 20 years prior. Got it. Not to right. go off on a tangent, but the other part mm. that made me die laughing was when he wanted to jerk off to something in the magazine <laughs> and he, find, mm -hmm. he finds the woman in the sweater. I, and he apologized. I, like I burst it out laughing at that. I thought that was so funny and stupid. There's a lot of funny, stupid things in this movie. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, like, anyway. I know I'm trashing on the film, but overall, I really liked it. So I, I want to preface that, like, I, I give it high regard in some ways. Like, I thought the kills were creative. <laughs> And I loved the beginning. I had like I was so fooled. I thought that was like the main cast, and then it they all started dying, and I was like, "Wait, what's happening?" And then I'm like, "Oh, mm -hmm. this is the opening scene." Like super, like that was really innovative and and fun. I haven't seen another movie do that. So you can always tell when we have someone from LA as a guest on here because I feel like y'all are so y'all don't want to like 
step on someone else's toes in the industry you work in so you're overly apologetic when you're criticizing a film <laughs> probably yeah but i did like it i'm being honest so yeah. i thought i thought overall it was good but there's definitely some parts <laughs> that i'd take issue with oh we will go through them um there was a wealth of information about how they cast jason what Derek Mears brought to the role, things like that. They did consider making this an origin story for Jason, but mm. the reason they did not, so we have some one thing to thank this Texas Chainsaw Massacre the beginning for. Um, Fuller informed said they learned from their experience with the beginning and uh, to not make Jason too sympathetic to the audience, and they decided against that origin story because they didn't want to focus on Jason's tormented childhood, feeling that it would demystify the character in an unhelpful manner. Correct. That is absolutely right. Yep. Funnily enough, Jonathan Liebsman, the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning, um, and the other aughts classic, classic, quote unquote, uh, Darkness Falls, was so, in negotiation. <laughs> I love Darkness Falls. It's fun. <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> it's that's a really stupid movie with a fantastic opening scene. Yeah, um, it's a fun, it's a fun time. I I watched that film with my best friend Amanda, and I think I took her on a date because. I was not out of the closet at the time, and I took her to go see that movie. So, points all across the board for that. <laughs> so, apparently there was scheduling conflict with Liebsman, and he was unavailable. And so Fuller and Form then went to Marcus Nispel, who had directed the 2003 remake of Texas Chainsaw. But it took some convincing to lure the German director out of his home in Malibu, because he had just taken a box office and critical beating with his 2007 film Pathfinder, Fuller mm. says he did not say yes immediately, and uh, Nispel voiced his concern with doing another franchise. Fuller right. apparently had to grovel for a long time. He got him on board, but hmm. I think his lack of passion is evident here when compared to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It doesn't have the same flavor. I think when you and I were talking about this offline, Trace, I described this as a bit more workmanlike. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One thing I've learned, though, working on the other side of film, like I worked... Mm -hmm you know, on the corporate side, is that a lot of times when there's too many cooks in the kitchen, yep. how the mm. film starts versus what you get as your end product is not always oh, yeah. the decisions or the vision of like the writer or the director or even the primary producers. It could be so many other people that are involved that make it what it is. So mm. I think like you never really know what, what the story was or what happened. So sometimes it's never even related to the director is what I've learned. Well, and I think for a property like this, I mean, again, given all the shit that's happened with this franchise in the past 15 years, I'm surprised this turned out as well as it did considering New Line, Paramount, and Cunningham were all involved with Yeah, this. there was a lot of drama, mm -hmm. like it seems like, to get it where it was. So I think, yeah. you know, overall, like, not bad. But I do, I do understand what you're saying, where, to me, Texas Chainsaw Massacre just, it just hit right in this, like, mm -hmm. perfect way. And this one missed, like, just slightly for some reason. So there was, like, I, I think just everything, all all of it worked perfectly. It was the perfect storm for Texas Chainsaw. And I don't know why that wasn't the case for this, per se. I mean, we I don't think we would have this movie if Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A, didn't exist or wasn't as big of a hit as it was. You know, that whole oh. remake boom of the mm -hmm. 2000s wouldn't exist. But this is kind of coming at the tail end of that remake boom. You know, yeah. I, I think the death knell was Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, yeah, this is the same year that we also get My Bloody Valentine. In some regards, I think we're also just feeling the fatigue of these, right? Like mm -hmm. at this point, we've had six years of 
a barrage almost of remakes and you look at this one and you think yeah parts of it are pretty good some of it not so great but it feels like they could have gone harder my issue is that they were all too glossy okay oh hmm. i hear that so much (laughs) i'm struggling to like put words to it but like all of the originals of these films whether it's amityville horror or texas chainsaw massacre they're all like gritty and they all came from the 70s and 80s and like had that particular aesthetic look that i think was just based on the technology they had available and i think Mm -hmm. creating something where you know the whether it was like the key art looking like it was direct to video at times or a lot of the cinematography was like had blue tints to it if you notice there's just parts of it that felt too glossified i don't know if that's a real word but it just i think that's what missed for me is like it didn't feel like it was you know like the the roots of it or something but yeah so i will repeat here what we we said on our episode our patreon episode of the that texas chainsaw massacre remake because the cinematographer of the original texas chainsaw massacre is daniel c pearl he also shot the remake of texas chainsaw massacre and he shot this movie friday 13 and Hmm. when people asked him hey like why are you changing the look for texas chainsaw you know it looks like y'all shot it in 16 millimeter it's grainy gritty exactly what you just described amir and his response was i already shot that movie one way why the fuck would i want to shoot it that way again Mm -hmm. interesting okay And it's a personal private. I have heard like these Platinum Dunes remakes are too sleek, shiny. They go against what the original films, like their aesthetic. Mm-hmm. That is by design, but it's a, yeah, it's a personal preference, right? Like I get why people like the look of the 80s, but unfortunately a movie coming out in 2009 isn't going to have that look <laughs> unless you're Ty West. <laughs> yeah. <Come on>. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they shot this movie, um, I didn't know this, in Austin, Texas. <laughs> mm. um, if you live in Austin, they uh, you can actually go to this lake house. I mean, it's probably a private property, but it's in Wimberley. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> Good to know. I didn't know that, that it was filmed in Austin. Oh, yeah. And so was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, principal photography began on April 21st of 2008 and lasted until June 13th. I don't normally cover music much on here, but because the score of the original is so iconic, um, I feel compelled. Platinum Dudes had the studio attain the licensing rights to Harry Manfredini's original score, but they weren't going to just copy and paste it, um, opting for a score that was reminiscent of Manfredini's score, but with a 2009 atmosphere. Um, I I was going to say, is that why we kind of get like some technoized version of it? Yes. So I have a quote from Nispel, and I kind of... I get what he's going for, and I think he accomplishes this, but I don't love it. Mm-hmm. The score was handled by Steve Jablonski, who was Marcus Nispel's choice, since he also did the score for both of the Texas Chainsaw Massacres, Amityville, The Hitcher, all those Platinum Dune movies. Oh, wow. Okay. He also did Nightmare on Elm Street, but... Let's not hold that against him. <laughs> yeah, well, well, and I, I have the score for that movie, and it's just really forgettable. Okay. Nispel told him to create something that he could whistle when he left the theater, but was subtle enough that it would not immediately register while watching the film. Hmm. Yeah, no, I understand exactly what you mean, because that makes sense. But also, no, don't don't go that way. Yeah, I could not tell hum you a a piece of score from this movie. (laughs) Absolutely not. My (laughs) question is, did Willa Ford have a song on the soundtrack? And if, and if not, missed opportunity. <laughs> I have right. this soundtrack on my phone. 
<laughs> Does it have a how do you deal? That's what we need to know. Okay, wait. I got Sister Christian. No, there is no Willa Ford on this soundtrack. I'm surprised. That feels like it could have been fun, but... Why do you even hire her if you're not going to let her sing? <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, I don't know why I have this soundtrack. Like, Because this would have come out when I was in college. And I, I think because this was the first Friday the 13th film that I could have seen in theaters, I was, la- mm-hmm. I was there opening night with this film. I, I was This film was my identity for like the month leading up to its release. I saw Jason X in oh, theaters sure. with my mom. Good times. I was See, like... I was- nine or ten oh oh god i was 13 and i was not allowed to go (laughs) yeah i would always go to horror movies even like starting in third grade it was pretty excessive probably explains a lot (laughs) well but the film was released in theaters on friday february 13th 2009 against fellow new releases confessions of a shopaholic and the international which is a naomi watts and clive owen movie that i have never heard of oh yeah Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm it was released in 3,100 theaters, the widest release of any Friday the 13th film, exceeding Freddy vs. Jason by 91 theaters. Okay. Over the three-day weekend, it grossed $40.5 million, making it the highest opening for a Friday the 13th film ever. And actually, with that gross, it became the second highest grossing film in the franchise, period, Um, just behind Freddy vs. Jason. Yeah. Okay, but tell us what happens next. <laughs> okay. So, uh, also, it was the highest three-day weekend opening of any horror film at the time, R-rated or otherwise. But yes, that second weekend, it saw a significant drop in attendance, grossing $7.9 a decrease of 80.4% from the previous weekend. There it is. I checked. This is the 17th worst second weekend drop of all time. Why do you think that is? What do you think contributed to that? (sighs) If I had to guess. I would say, A, quote-unquote true fans of the franchise did not like this movie, so word of mouth was not there. Mm-hmm. Critical reception wasn't good, and I think that mm-hmm. once you lose that Friday the 13th like, marketing date, the appeal isn't there. Huh, interesting. Yeah, and I think we also forget that, you know, there was a time and place where horror films would come out. And, you know, I think you could argue this is still mostly true for any film that doesn't have that sort of A24 yeah, I'm going to say it. Slightly elevated prestige. <laughs> elevated <laughs> horror. I know. <laughs> but but like conventionally slashers, like they come out, they do big business on the first weekend and then they drop like a stone. It's what we expect them to do. It's what most horror films do do. It just this looks really, really bad because the number is so high and then it just falls back to earth like a regular horror film does. You probably also have all the fans going that opening weekend to see it. So like it's all it's all track like backtracked in the in the beginning, I would imagine. And then over time, it Mm -hmm. fizzles out. So I think if it had good reviews and good buzz, that would bring in people that weren't part of like the the fandom as much. And maybe it just didn't have that. So, yeah. And if the fandom didn't like it, then they're not going to go and see it a second time, which means you're not getting any of the repeat business. And I implore listeners, if you have not seen this movie since 2009, do give this a revisit. I mean, I'm not saying oh, you're yeah. going like, to yeah, love yeah. it now, but I think you're going to find it easier to like watch than you did back in 2009 when you were like, all mm-hmm. right, Platinum Dunes, let's see what you got. 
And like when you can see it without the years of anticipation, right? Yeah. It's much mm-hmm. easier to acknowledge, oh, this is what the film is. Do you like it or not? It's not. This is the first Friday the 13th film we've gotten in nearly a decade. Well, and that's kind of the thing. You know, I don't think this is as good as Texas Chainsaw, Last House on the Left, Hills Have Eyes. Like those are like peak remakes at that time for me. But it's mm-hmm. not like an abomination like Prom no. Night or An I'm Elm Street or name anything mm-hmm. else <laughs> from that era. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing well. You've been naming other ones that you forgot in the beginning, so. I know. Getting my Kirby from Scream 4. She's beaten me. Oh, fun fact, though. While this was the 17th worst second weekend drop of all time, Halloween Ends is the 19th worst. Woo! <laughs> Evil dies. <laughs> or was that um, the second one? That's the second one. The We're talking about the Cory entry. The Cor- oh, <laughs> Halloween <yes>. Cory. <laughs> Halloween Corey. But yeah, so by the end of its run, Friday the 13th earned an estimated 65 million at the domestic box office. Oof. We are looking at 25 and a half million worldwide for a worldwide gross of $92 million against a budget of 19 million. So I mean, Mm -hmm. this movie was profitable as fuck. It's just... Sure. They needed it to be way, way more because they saw that opening gross. Mm Mm-hmm. Critics hated this. We're looking at a 25% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 4.3 out of 10. 34 out of 100 on Metacritic. CinemaScore audiences gave it a B-, and Letterboxd users have given it a 5 out of 10. Now, months later, October 2nd, 2009, Warner Brothers Pictures sets a release date for a sequel to Friday the 13th as August 13th, 2010. Mm-hmm. Two months later, on December 10th, they pulled it from the release date and it was delayed indefinitely. So, you know, we had a good two months of actually looking forward to Friday the 13th Part (laughs) 2. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you two think that if this film had to come out five or ten years later, like, say we had had a longer gap between uh, Jason X and this, on that first weekend gross, do you think they would have gone ahead with the planned sequel or do you think, no? the way it topped out they would have always canceled it that's such a good question because five years later is such a different market right and it's Mm -hmm. like the start of you know a lot of elevated streaming and they're just starting to get into film at that time so Mm -hmm. i think had it come out nowadays yes like i think Mm -hmm. it would have been totally different but 2015 i don't know if the landscape was different enough that it would have changed anything well right because again, which I'm sorry to bring it back to the fun conversation, but mm-hmm. <laughs> like horror movies that were fun just weren't happening because of that whole like post 9-11, like torture porn thing. So and again, like look, look at Texas Chainsaw, look at that Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left. I mean, even though Last House on the Left waters down, arguably, the original film, it's still brutal as fuck. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. There really wasn't anything that was not taking itself too seriously at the time. And when you mm-hmm. have movies like... You know, even a few years before, like Hostel or Saw, mm-hmm. like they were all just so like disturbing and all focused on gore. So, and slashers weren't really in vogue at the time. I mean, this is the same year that Sorority Row comes out and makes no money. We're kind of nearing the end of the Saw era, but we're kicking off the Paranormal Activity era, so we're going into found mm-hmm. footage and more ghost stuff. Like slashers wouldn't really come back, and I mean, I would say until Scream Five and Six. Yeah, right. Scream 4 yeah. came out in 2010, though, right? So that 2011, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it didn't do well. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that one doesn't make money, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this movie made more money than Scream 4 did. I think it made almost double. Interesting. Mm-hmm. By the way, did anybody clock that the cop in this movie is from Desperate Housewives? 
uh, and Hostel Part Two. Yes, Richard mm-hmm. Berkey. <laughs> Currently rewatching Desperate Housewives, and I was like, oh, I re- I recognize you. <laughs> Yeah. Carl, right? He, he would do these bit roles every once in a while in horror films. It seems like he kind of enjoys dipping his toe into the genre. Yeah. But um, that's all I got, Joe. So what happens in this movie? Okay. Well, we're going to start with the best, unfortunately. So <laughs> the movie opens uh, in June of 1980, and it's raining, it's black and white, and it's basically the end of the original Friday the 13th film. So we get to watch Pamela Voorhees, who is here played by Nana Winter, and she opens the film by getting her head decapitated and then we've got child jason played by caleb gus and we hear his mother pleading to him kill for mother it's a pretty solid cold open i like it i actually would have liked it if it was just shown in full without the breaks and the credits um mm-hmm. now amir i will say that there's one thing i don't think you had a lot of child jason in your version of this film I know, as you're mentioning this, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, so, wait, did, I was like, did I forget this part? Like, I don't know. No, so the killer cut does add, there, it, it, again, it's not even a whole scene, it's just shots. You can see shots of Jason watching his mother getting decapitated, and mm-hmm. whereas in your version, the locket falls and we do a zoom in on the locket, in our version, child Jason walks out and grabs the locket and walks away. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. that that adds up. <laughs> <laughs> and i like i like that though because it, it it at least provides a continuity that was missing from the first two films because remember jason's just alive because mm-hmm. in, the, in that second movie. Know, he just like came yeah. out of nowhere <laughs> yeah this suggests that at least pamela knew he he was alive but she blamed the counselors for how he had been treated so she's still you know a little bit off of her rocker but it at least explains how he's still alive mm-hmm. Trace, were you at Fantastic Fest when they did a drag show interpretation of Pamela Voorhees saving Jason? <laughs> no, I was not, oh but that sounds awesome. <laughs> and like Jason's drowning in the back like of the dance floor and she rips off her blue sweater and her wig and has like a Baywatch swimsuit underneath. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it was pretty epic. It was like this whole 10 minute elaborate sweet sequence that performance art (laughs) (laughs) okay so we jump ahead and it's now quote-unquote present day crystal lake we are in color we are introduced to a group of 20 somethings who are hiking and they stop to set up camp so we are pitch intense um okay i'm just gonna say it this Mm -hmm. group of characters is a lot more interesting than the group we will get after they die i would agree actually i definitely agree i mean it was love at first (laughs) oil spray so (laughs) well i think also i'm not a huge like critic of the whole like well these people don't seem like they could be friends but Mm -hmm. these people actually seem like friends whereas the kids we get later do not (laughs) no And, of course, we're going to acknowledge that that's a pretty standard issue friend group for the Friday the 13th Mm -hmm. films, right? It's a regular criticism. These people don't seem to like each other very much. Why are they hanging out? So maybe it makes more sense that our ultimate group does fall into that criteria, whereas these kids seem like, oh, yeah, they they like each other. And I think that's why I got so fooled in the beginning thinking this was the real cast, because they actually had that chemistry with one another where i was like getting attached to the characters and then you know suddenly one by one it starts happening and i was like oh wait (laughs) it's it's so early what are we doing oh my god 
And I will also say this, like, no shade to Amanda Rigetti. She does what she can with a nothing role, but the least mm-hmm. interesting character of this group survives. <laughs> well, it's a subversion. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Okay, so we have uh, Wade, who is the guy with the GPS, who is very adamant about finding this famed, illustrious pot of... Well, I guess I, I was going to say field. pot of gold, but I guess it's a, a field of pot. Yes. <laughs> so Wade is played by Jonathan Sadowski. He is bickering with Richie, who is played by Ben Feldman. Uh, and... Like, what a different role for this actor to take, right? Mm-hmm. I just, I know him mostly from uh, Superstore and Drop Dead Diva. Right. Yes. Yeah. And and I think one of the other good things that they do is they they cast at least one familiar person in this friend group. So you think, oh, OK, well, they're not just going to kill him unless we're just doing the cold open thing that we murder the famous person. But you don't think we're going to do that because Friday the 13th doesn't do that. It's interesting. I don't think he would have been even a name at this time. I think the biggest quote unquote name in this group is Amanda Rigetti, who would have been known for the OC. Right. Yeah. So Richie is also bickering with Mike, who is played by Nick Menel, and then Mike's girlfriend is Whitney, Amanda Rigetti. So she and Mike take a walk because she is there and she's feeling bad about it. We hear her say a line about how, you know, she shouldn't be there because she should still be looking after her mom. And he says, well, you just need to relax, you know, we'll just enjoy the weekend and then you'll get back to her kind of deal. <laughs> So at the campfire, we see Wade fixing his GPS and then he wanders off and he basically wanders off because Richie and Amanda, Amanda is played by America Olivo, basically they want to fuck. And this is, yes, our oil on tits moment. These boobs look so fucking fake. No offense, (laughs) but yeah, she is like rubbing these all over the place and they are not budging. Hmm. Mm. definitely something (laughs) i did appreciate the um i don't eat fish that's not what you told me line yeah there's a couple of good sexual zingers in here i think sometimes they just feel a little too try hard for me that's fair so uh wade ends up going off to pee this is where he discovers oh i'm actually standing in the middle of this field of pot and that's when he is unceremoniously killed off screen i might add by baghead jason who is now played by Derek mears and i know that there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff about how they put together the mask how they put together jason's look mm-hmm. This one just looks so much like a cross between the spanish film time crimes and the town mm-hmm. that dreaded sundown i was like it's fine i thought of the town that dreaded sundown when i saw that for sure well i think when part two originally came out i think there were comparisons to it i I will say and this is gonna sound so mean um because i went through every single bonus feature on this blu-ray and i I even watched the whole movie again with the picture in picture like behind the scenes stuff and so much work went into this movie like they were very meticulous with a lot of their choices with the design and like specifically with all things jason and right I'm not saying that all that work was for naught. Like, you see it on screen, but it's kind of one of those things where I was like, I think maybe that was attracting too much of your attention. Like, maybe put some of it into the story and the characters? A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I like a good balance, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's tricky with these franchises, right? Because in some ways you have to get these details so right or else the fans will eat you alive. But then, yeah, maybe you're putting all of your attention in one basket and you need to be spreading the wealth a little more. I do agree with your sentiment, though, on uh, the first like main kill of this movie being an off-screen kill. Like, what the fuck are we doing here? 
it feels like they're holding back because, oh, we, we're going to kill so many people in this movie. This isn't going to be the gnarly one. And I'm like, yeah, but you still need to show it to us. Like, I get, again, there's a historical legacy in this franchise where we do this, right? We kill people and then we find their bodies horribly mutilated later. But it's also like, okay, but it's 2009. Why aren't you updating this? Yeah. Um, question for both of you. Is this Jason's weed patch? <laughs> i actually was thinking about that i was like where are they mm-hmm. where this is just growing <laughs> casually but well, i mean i've seen a bunch of people complaining like okay the tunnels but how is he like how is he doing electricity because we see him flip the lights at one point and i was like uh maybe he's selling the pot everybody how <laughs> He's got that old fucking lady who's like, he just wants to be left alone, oh. which means uh, she's buying dime bags all the fucking time. Oh, yeah. That, she, she's definitely the main customer. That tracks. It, but the, it, people, like, more so than tunnels, they always complain about the weed stuff, too. And again, I'm just like, I mean, th- the old lady is a loose thread. I'm like, what the fuck it's is It's true. This? It's unresolved. But at the same time, it's like, I mean, y'all, come on. Look at the other films in this franchise. It is no better or worse than most of them. <laughs> There's always that <laughs> one character that's like warning of doom like oh yeah yeah. the harbinger yeah yeah and here's the thing what's gonna happen is when we get brian fuller's tv show it's gonna go the bates motel route and it's gonna be all about the secret drug pot growing farm in the area and all of our answers will be provided then oh my god at first i was like how do you know that but no i forgot the the, (laughs) i like blocked the pot storyline of bates motel out of my memory (laughs) i hate it it's so bad (laughs) It also just feels like I, I feel like pot and weed in general now is just so casual that yeah. mm-hmm. it felt like in 2009 it was a much bigger deal. And it was like, oh, you know, yeah. showing like, oh, these kids are like rowdy and they're like troublemakers. They love mm-hmm. weed. Like when now I'm just like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Like it just hits different yeah. watching it today, I think. But you can't grow fine like a field of math you know yeah that's true oh my god i found i found the mysterious field of coke hey everybody put your noses to the ground <laughs> it, it <laughs> could be like poppy seed like ozark <laughs> oh my god oh yeah my god. So, there we go w- weed is the only thing that grows where you can just smoke it like right out the ground the other shit you gotta process that shit mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> okay i didn't actually know you could just smoke weed right off right out of the ground Oh, sure. Yeah. That's interesting. I I just thought, like, you have to dry it out or (laughs) do something to it. Okay, you know what? Actually, now that you say that, I'm questioning myself. I just assume you could, like, (laughs) grab a bud, put it in a grinder, and go. (laughs) I think it has to be dry. I don't know. Like, I wouldn't know. And you live in Denver, Trace. Come on. Well, I mean, it is true that all the weed that I buy from the dispensaries around, they are dried out. Mm -hmm. But I don't... You know, I'm I'm not a chemist. I don't know. <laughs> not a chemist. Oh my god. Well, because I, I was gonna say, like, I don't think drying it out would affect the chemical makeup of the weed and make you like a different you high. Don't know, but sir. maybe. Yeah, I, I'm talking out of my ass. I'm sorry. <laughs> you are not a THCologist. No, sure. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so while this is happening, Whitney and Mike are out exploring. They find the abandoned Crystal Lake campers. We got lots of antiquated furniture. And yes, we find the necklace of Pamela Voorhees. And Whitney kind of looks like her a little bit. So cool. Uh, She gets creeped out. She immediately wants to go. Meanwhile, we've got Richie and Amanda fucking in the tent. Of course, we're hearing twigs snapping outside. She wants to stop. He wants to keep plowing hijinks ensue they both die it's fine 
Well, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, her death is horrifying. Yeah. Well, and because one of the most famous deaths from this franchise is the sleeping bag kill from part seven. Mm hmm. This isn't because in, in part seven, you know, he just whacks her against the tree and boom. Iconic. Yeah, th this is horrible. I actually love Richie's death. I love the, the bear trap and the machete in the head. I like it too. It's really gnarly. Mm -hmm. And I, I think even with her, like she's kind of like cooked like a tamale or something. So yeah. it's, and like seeing her come out at the end and just like fall out of the bag. I think so I thought that was creative. It's really fun because so there is a bonus feature where they go through like seven of the deaths in the movie and how they made them practically and stuff. And there's a moment when um, when Whitney comes and she she first reaches Amanda's body before she goes over to Richie. Right. And she's supposed to, like, kind of grab Amanda, but she ends mm -hmm. up, like, pulling a chunk of skin, of burnt Ooh. flesh off of her side. And they're, like, showing you this in the making of, and I'm like, we don't see that in the movie. <laughs> mm -mm. I mean, that is one of the things that I was actually going to comment on when you said, Amir, this looks a little too glossy, is that some of this stuff, I know that they were using practical effects, but then they also touched it up with digital mm -hmm. and i feel like the digital pieces stand out to such an extent that it makes a lot of the deaths feel a little more artificial as a i would agree with that and i actually have a firm rule with everything that i've done in my films and mm -hmm. what i will do in future films like i don't want to use cgi for anything i just i believe in the art of practical effects like I, and I even think of movies like The Thing from, you know, the 80s and how mm -hmm. it holds up still today to the, you know, or Alien, like those, I, <laughs> there's something so magical about the art of practical effects, I think, so. I think, and Joe, I think you probably agree with me on this, even the worst practical effects, to me, look better than some of the best CGI. I would agree. Hands down. Well, and I'm also, I'm so much more forgiving when I see that people put the time and effort into making it because I know it's way easier to just do blood splatter on the screen. But also, I'm just so taken out. When I see Practical, I'm like, oh my god, thank you for putting in the time and effort and money. Yeah, and I think it probably takes just as much time to do CGI. There's someone on the other end, like, having to create that virtually, but it just doesn't have the same punch. It never looks as good. Well, mm -mm. the best CGI, in the case of this film, you know, when we're using digital effects to enhance the practical effects, um, now I'm not using this film as an example, but just like that kind of a thing, it's mm -hmm. the best CGI is when you can't tell that they're CGI. Exactly, yeah. I'm sure there's probably a bunch of FX work in this film that we can't identify because it's done well. Yeah. But there are a couple of moments that are not done particularly well, and I can spot them immediately. What's well. an example of one of them? I'm trying to like, there's nothing that comes to my mind immediately of like CGI. So I would say Willa Ford's death when she gets mm -hmm. the machete in the head. Yeah. Or yeah. it almost looks like she's like a dummy. Like there's something. She is a dummy. But you can tell that they've tweaked it so that you can't spot when they shift from the actress to the actual dummy. Yeah, because, like, yeah. Be because they have behind the scenes footage of her like in a harness under the dock getting pulled up and bumping her head on the dock. So like they but but but, but it's interesting in those scenes, her tits are covered by like a brown mm -hmm. cloth. So it's clearly yep. the, the dummy that has the tits that we see in that scene. Yep. Yeah, that whole part mm -hmm. just seemed awkward. Like when she like gets pulled up and hits her head, it was so quick and just like very subtle and i'm like oh okay like that's how she died <laughs> that's actually one of my favorite deaths in the movie if only because it feels different like it's not gory mm -hmm. or it really gory or anything but it's something where i was like oh i haven't seen that before and i can't say that about most of the deaths in this movie like i 
my biggest gripe out of any of the gripes that I have is that I don't think the kills in this movie hold up against most of the kills in the rest of the franchise. No, they're, they're not particularly exciting. And I will say this is going to make me sound prudish. It's not my intention. But as much as I like that death, all I can think about is how, oh, we just wanted to get one last glimpse of her tits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that that bothers me. I'm just like, this could have been cool. I studied a lot of this like in college around just like slasher films in the 70s and 80s and you know when you when you show nudity at the same time as violence against women in particular it's mm -hmm. like what does that do you know and it does it mm -hmm. does it link those two things together and what are the ramifications of it so there's like a whole deeper component even to that so yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. which we don't need to get into because we're having fun <laughs> <laughs> really stop bringing the mood down jeez we did jump over <laughs> mike's death I actually like this set piece a lot. I'm a sucker for like a knife coming mm -hmm. out from under the floorboards, but Oh yeah. Yeah. His death itself is a little anticlimactic because he gets just gets dragged under and he's gone. Mm-hmm. I think the reason for that is, um, so on the day of shooting for this, Derek Mears was not on set because he was out of town for a wedding. So they didn't have uh, Derek Mears for Mike's death scene. Interesting right. reason. Okay. okay. <laughs> that better have been a good wedding. Like I know. <laughs> It is interesting because it seems like some of this came together very quickly. Like Richard Berge got 12 hours notice. And uh, one of the other actors, I think it's the girl who plays Chelsea. Like she got the call and she had to be on a plane first thing in the morning and she was shooting that day. So I don't know if it was like an accelerated production or if they just had really tight deadlines. But it doesn't seem like there was any kind of wiggle room in case people had alternative things that they needed to you know oh i got a wedding oh i got sick or something <laughs> the girl that plays chelsea that's that's willa ford amir's favorite Damn pop it. star okay. <laughs> oh i'm sorry for all of these generic as fuck white names and interchangeable actors everyone looks the fucking same in this movie except for lawrence and chewy the two well, characters who get nothing to do truthfully the first time i saw this Thank, thank God Willa Ford dies early because I kept getting Willa Ford and Juliana Gull. Gwill? Gwill? Whatever you say. Um, confused. That's Brie? Brie. Yeah, the, the two blondes who get who get, to get topless. There we go. It's like, you couldn't have even cast a fucking redhead in here somewhere? I guess I just know Willa Ford, like, the back of my... I'm so, Like, I'm positioning myself to be such a stan, but, like, I knew that was Willa <laughs> Ford, and I did not mix those two up, because one of them is an iconic music artist. <laughs> and the other wow. one is just Juliana Gill. <laughs> Rude! <laughs> um okay yeah so mike is killed after being sucked into the floor whitney discovers uh richie and amanda amanda yes there we go and then it looks like she gets killed by jason and we cut to our title card and that is 24 minutes into the film yep oh i didn't oh, realize mm -hmm. that yeah so the movie proper is about 80 minutes long okay huh I mean, you say it that way, Trace, but you can't divide it that way. Like, no, I'm, I'm, but I'm just saying in the sense, I, I, I know, I totally understand what you were saying, but just in the sense where it's like, oh, this feels like a short film, like a, a, mm -hmm. a practice run at someone who wants to be the, the director of the next Friday the 13th movie. And right. even though, yes, we have the through line with Whitney and the sister of the shit. We don't meet our main characters until 25 minutes into this movie. <laughs> it's a long intro. Like, I'd, I'd love to see if there's another horror movie that has an opening kill that's longer than that. Because, like, even Scream doesn't uh, even come close. Her. So 
No, those are like 11, 14 minutes at most. So I do think that this is one of the longest ones. Yeah. I like it. Like for me, this is the film at its most audacious because mm-hmm. I remember the first time I watched this, I was taken completely by surprise. I, I yeah, still yeah. was <laughs> two, to, two nights ago. <laughs> so. so yes, we jump ahead six weeks. We are introduced to a new group of 20-somethings as they stop outside of a convenience store. So let's go through them. We have Asshole Trent, who is played by Travis Van Winkle, his girlfriend Jenna, who is played by Danielle Panabaker, our presumed final girl because we assume that Whitney is dead. We have uh, Nolan, who is played by Veronica Mars's Ryan Hansen, does not get enough to do. I'm no. angry. His girlfriend Chelsea, Willa Ford. Bree, who I could not tell you a single thing about her except that she fucks Trent, played by Juliana Gill. Lawrence, who is played by Arlen Escaparta, who okay, wait. is tell the me, black guy. Yeah, I was gonna say, tell me something about Lawrence other than he's the black stoner. <laughs> no, 100%. It's like, uh, basically, Brie, Lawrence, and then Chewie, who is played by Aaron Yu, aka the only actor to cross over between both the Friday the 13th franchise and... The Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Nightmare on Elm Street. I think that... Uh, Aaron Yu is the only person who really manages to create a character out of nothing, and the other two suffer by comparison because they just don't have the personality, but there's too many people and not enough interesting things about them. It's like, we just cast a bunch of people so we could kill them. Yeah, like, the dialogue feels really weird. There's not enough character development amongst the characters, and I actually really like Aaron Yu, and I think the role they gave him was obviously, like, a very cliche kind of like stoner character mm-hmm. but i i think oh, sure. like he himself is really dynamic and i would have loved oh, to yeah. see like more amongst the characters or like more interesting plot points or tensions between them like some sort of mm-hmm. drama that's kind of like interlaced amongst the group like that would have been interesting to me well I, i'm glad y'all are singling out aaron you because that that is even bad reviews at the He's time the best. Sing, singled out him i actually have the dialogue is at its best quote unquote um here like i this is a nothing thing, but I do like the, the little riff we get whenever um, Brie is asking Lawrence about what kind of music he's doing, and she's like rap, and he kind of calls her on it, but then it is rap. I I think that stuff's kind of fun. Mm, I don't know. That to me just feels like super awkward 2009 racist humor, where we're like, ha ha, there's a black person in a horror film, let's make black jokes. But it's not even a, well, I mean, it is. It I is, don't, Trace. I don't know, but I don't think it's at the expense of the black character. Like, he calls her out on her, like, per, like her, her racism, but then, yes, falls into the trope. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I it just it felt funny. unnecessary to me. It was like, well, do we need this? Does it move the plot? I don't know. Does it contribute anything? I mean, it's one of her only lines of dialogue in the movie. <laughs> Well, I think it it says something about her and it says something about him. I I agree with you. I don't think the movie is making fun of him. I think it's the script saying we don't need to give this person any actual characteristics except to be black. Now, are y'all surprised that there's not more homophobia in this movie? Because the only line that I pulled out was one of these first scenes where um, they talk about I pay you pump and Nolan says he gives a wicked blowjob and... Trent kind of like hesitates but that's the Mm -hmm. bulk of the homophobia we get in this movie isn't it 
Yeah, there's really um, nothing in it. I, I just feel like yeah. gay people just don't exist in this film. That's the thing. Maybe no, well, that's the homophobia is that we're just non-existent in this in any I, shape or form. I think Shannon and Swift learned their lesson from Miss Kelly Rowland's F-slur drop in Freddy vs. Jason. Uh, <laughs> right. yeah. I didn't even, I forgot about that to be honest. Oh my god. Well, because we still don't know who wrote that line. They claim she ad-libbed it. <laughs> Good boy. Oh boy. Yeah, it's bad all around. But I, I agree with you, Amir. Not only is it that queer people don't exist in this world, which is fine. I mean, we don't show up in every fucking film. And sometimes when we do, it just feels tokenistic. So sometimes it's better when we don't. It's more that this movie often feels like waves of like, not toxic masculinity, but just... Everyone is so desperate to one-up each other, and I think that's where the feeling that they're not really friends comes into play. Like, Trace, I know that you found out something from that picture-in-picture trivia that they all acted like they don't like Trent and they're just using him for this house, but part of me is like, oh, well, why can't we just say that in the film? Because that would have given us an additional conflict to work with that would have made these characters more believable. Yeah. Doesn't the character Aaron you play doesn't he say something like that when he's in the shed like he's he, he finds the alcohol and he's like oh like I knew there's a reason I'm friends with you or something like that mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, so, so it's Willa Ford saying this she says you know we all hate Trent we're just here for the lake house and I was like I don't get that we don't from get a that. lot of your performances like I, I like yes do they all kind of roll their eyes when Trent says something asshole-ish absolutely but it's also a thing where I don't know why Jenna is dating this person. I have no, no. idea. <laughs> and she seems way too together. Like her interactions with Clay feel like a romantic comedy that we're watching where we're getting this series of meet cutes and we know that they're the proper partner. And obviously this is setting up the subversion that when she dies later on, we all feel really bad because we thought she was going to win. But it doesn't make any sense why a girl like her would be with Trent. Like, we don't even get a reaction when she finds out that he's fucking Brie. Oh, and I oh. get it. It happens at a bad time in the film, but come on. But, you know, like, so we just, you know, had our audio commentary on Heather's come out last week on the Patreon. And we talked about how we, the critiques about how is Veronica, the um the Winona Ryder character in this friend group, it makes sense to us in that film. And mm-hmm. you can make the argument, yes, okay, there are a lot of people date assholes and they stay with them for whatever reasons. But this film offers us no reason as to why Jenna is in this no. relationship. <laughs> no. She's in it for this palatial fucking house because this thing is massive. I'm surprised, though, that she just like went off with Clay. I'm like, <laughs> she just literally goes off with him the whole night. Mm-hmm. They're like going into sketchy cabins in the woods. She doesn't even know this guy. <laughs> like, yeah. It makes no sense. It felt no very sense. deviated from her character. Like she's bold enough to do that, but not bold enough to like call out her boyfriend or leave him. So yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and I like this character because I like Danielle Panabaker, but hundred percent Jenna is nothing. Eh. Yeah. It, it's coasting on familiarity because we know the actor and we like her. I will tell you all this little secret. So one of my friends went to uh, like one of the early screenings of this, whenever it was like making the rounds, I guess. And Marcus Spell mm-hmm. was in attendance. And after the screening, he like, it's this whole theater of Alamo Draft House attendees. And he's like, all right, y'all, who expected Jenna to die? Fully thinking everyone was going to be like, oh my God, I had no idea. The whole fucking mm-hmm. theater raised their hands. <laughs> um, <no. laughs> Is it bad I didn't like expect it or not expect it? I just like didn't think about it. And even when she did die, I didn't have like much of a reaction because her character was so just like 
I don't know, mm-hmm. kind of like like it didn't give me enough to feel attached to the character. So, oh, right. yeah, no, I, I only feel bad because I was like, oh, Daniel Panderbaker's out of this movie now. Yeah, mm-hmm. just that. Yeah, <laughs> she could have been the final girl. She could have gotten another movie and a bigger paycheck. I mean, again, I would argue Whitney's not much more of a character, but we'll no. get there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've mentioned Jared Padalecki's Clay. Uh, of course, he's there passing out missing persons flyers for Whitney because she disappeared in the area. I'm going to say this is more appropriately toxic masculinity between Trent and Clay. These two characters are immediately pitted against each other. And of course, Jenna is caught in the middle. Yeah. Oh, and before everyone yells at us, yes, we know. Travis Winkle is playing the same character he played in Michael Bay's first Transformers movie. Oh, yeah. Just... The trivia that who could give an actual fuck about. (laughs) I I will say, though, I walk away from this movie remembering Travis Van Winkle the most. Like, as much of an Mm -hmm. asshole as Trent is, he is the best character in this movie. Uh, He's the one who makes most of an impression. Yeah. I'm going to argue it's still Willa Ford. (laughs) Oh, my God. God. I mean, get out of here. (laughs) She has, like, two (laughs) lines of dialogue in this movie. And I think her tits have more lines of dialogue than she does. I don't care. I support it. (laughs) I definitely remember the tits more than I like the naked weight boarding is definitely the The fact that she learned that in like 12 days is so impressive. Did she do all her own stunts? Because she was like flying in the air at some point. Okay. Yeah. The only thing she didn't do herself was that when the boat hits her, that's a composite shot. Oh, I would hope. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A little too dangerous. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Okay, so Clay is uh, pulled over by Sheriff Brack, that is Richard Berge. We have this thing about, you know, yeah, Whitney is missing, but she wouldn't have missed mom's funeral. So it doesn't make any sense that she would have run away, which is, of course, what we assume all young girls do when they go missing. Except there's like four other. He says like, oh, the other families are looking elsewhere. And I was like, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what do they know that we don't? <laughs> like all these kids went camping in this town and they all disappeared. Like, I'm sorry. That's. <laughs> yeah, not suspicious at all. It's super weird. The family showed up and then they were asking questions and then they all left with giant bags of pot and they never came back, <laughs> never asked any other questions. So J- weird. <laughs> Jason gave them some hush weed. <laughs> mm-hmm. You keep your mouth shut, you narc. Actually, maybe that old woman is his dealer. Like he is the supplier and she's the dealer. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. So I thought you meant that she was his customer. Like like she she was well, the one that was I- like smoking all the weed. It's where I started and then I was hoping people would logically move it along because I was like, yeah, I mean, Jason's obviously not going to go door to door being like, hey, want to buy any weed? Oh, that's my jigsaw voice. Never mind. Yeah, there is no Jason voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying is he's he's not going to make a very good dealer because if he just shows up, you know, with a machete in one hand and a baggie of weed in the other, you're probably going to run away. But yeah, he just dumps the weed off with old lady. She sells it or Donnie sells it. Who knows? ain't missing she's dead (laughs) uh okay so uh yes we go to trent's palatial cottage it's lovely we've got this joke about sweet lucille the giant bong that chewy pulls out which p.s comes to nothing it's a weird 
additional detail where I wondered if there were more scenes of him and Lawrence smoking up or if we use the bong in some way against Jason. Okay, the fact that that bong does not get smashed and shoved into someone's neck. Why didn't we do that with Chewy, right? Exactly. I know. Exactly. Why? What did they use? Like a a needle or a pen it's a screwdriver yeah a screwdriver <laughs> like well, something went mm-hmm. in his neck and i was like that could have been like the bong that would have been great actually mm-hmm. they could have done the chugs bottle down the throat thing and have Ooh. like the bong go down his throat and then like i don't know smoke come out of his eye sockets or something yes that would have like they're they're using him like a, a piece like a bong yeah I mean, admittedly, that does sound a little bit more Freddy versus Jason's vibe. So I wonder if they thought, oh, okay, we're not really going in that direction. Yeah, you'd have to find a way to not make it cartoonish. Mm. But again, look, I don't think that sorority row thing. I think, I mean, even though it's kind of a funny death, like it's still kind of horrifying when Chugs gets that death. Oh, it totally is. And it's way more memorable. Like, mm-hmm. Chewie, as you said, I mean, you're getting stabbed with a screwdriver. Who fucking remembers that? It, it, I think it's the most painful looking death in this movie. Maybe. Sure. Yeah, maybe. It's the one that made me grimace the most, for sure. Like, it felt yeah. really, like, gritty and gory, but it, it wasn't, you know, something that really stood out as, like, an outlandish kill. Well, yeah, because death by screwdriver just doesn't have a good ring to it. <laughs> no. But also, I think the reason that it does work as well as it does is A, because it is Chewy, a character we like, but also B, because we actually hold on it. Like, Jason has to work for it. Everybody else's death is always just, you know, okay, we stab Willow Ford in the head and then it's over. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. You notice, like, all of the weapons that Jason uses in this are very, like, hunting-oriented. So he uses, like, bear traps, he uses uh, bow and arrows, he uses machetes, like, it all mm-hmm. kind of has this element of, like, the hunter, and I wonder if there was yes. some, like, discussion around that as they were making this. There oh, was. there was. Yeah, I mean, tr- <laughs> the, the conversations they had about Jason, I, I got bored reading it. I was like, okay, like, this character does not deserve this much attention, but I, I say that, the fans do not say that. <laughs> Yeah, so Amir, to answer your question very briefly, they consider him a survivalist. So that's how he lasted on his own, is he learned how to take care of himself in the woods. So that's why he's accomplished doing all of these things. That makes sense. And then it's almost like, you know, those people that are like doomsdayers and build bunkers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's like, kind of like that. And the scene when he uses Lawrence's body as bait, like, I think that's a really cool idea, but it's such a small part sure. of the movie. And they talk about it like it is mm-hmm. like a revelation. <laughs> well, and, and they think that that's a really smart thing, right? Like, we're making smart Jason in this. He's yeah. he's not a dull Luddite. He's actually really smart about luring them out and how he's going to execute them. And I'm like, uh, I get that when you say it, but not so much from the actual finished film. No, and I like the idea of using his bait, but again, it, it's not like it doesn't come to anything after that. Mm-mm, mm-mm. And I think that's an interesting lesson, even from my perspective of, you know, as I make films, like you don't need to overthink things that just need to be simple. Well, okay, I'm sorry. I mean, I I don't mean to jump ahead of that, Jesse, but the way to do it is you don't have a you don't have Clay say he's using him as bait. You have someone Mm -hmm. go out there and check him. And then we realize Jason's using them as bait. That's how you do that. Oh, you mean show don't tell? Oh, (laughs) what a concept a revelation <laughs> like th- that that would have been actually a good way is if he was using chewy's body as bait and lawrence went out yeah. to get him and that would have been a more memorable death sequence for lawrence as well uh-huh yeah 
Okay, so we're we're still setting yeah. the mood, setting up these locations and so on. So yeah, we meet the old lady. She's played by Rosemary Noer. We meet Donnie, who is played by Kyle Davis. He's kind of the local yokel. He drops a little bit of exposition. We also get to see the fucking Shredder, which is just Chekhov Shredder written all over it. Oh, yeah. This Donnie character, I... Mm-hmm. <laughs> he... I actually do find it funny when he starts, like, talking to that mannequin, like, calling it, saying it's tied. Uh, please refer to her by name. Gina has a name. <laughs> he lost his virginity to that mannequin, Trace. I want to know, I want to know, like, the practicalities of how that happened. <laughs> like, that right? does not, that does not look comfortable in any way. She's not a sex doll. She's an actual mannequin. Where is that dick going? I have to imagine the the legs of the mannequin are like close to each other. So like, if Ooh. you just put some lube in the little, like the, the area just between friction? the legs. Yeah. But Ugh, I, no. I don't like this character because it feels like Rob Zombie came in and wrote his scenes. Oh my God. I put in my notes, local yokel. But also again, he just now finds the weed and I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what What are the people in this town doing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's hard to find. You have to break a GPS and then <laughs> magically fix it. It just so happens. Well, because we also know that someone, quote unquote, Jason, uh, has been stealing fuel from this barn. Hmm. Yes. Which ones again? That's how he's powering the lights. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. So we get a bit more about Trent. He's very OCD about keeping everything spick and span. He wants to control everybody because he's that kind of asshole. Nolan and Chelsea do not take very kindly to this. So they take his car and they decide that they're going to go out on the boat. Woo! <laughs> Yay! Um, yeah, there's a bunch of things happening. So like they're doing that. We have Jenna and Clay having their meet cute when he shows up to flyer at the house and Bree's the pot stir because she's like filming them like, oh, we're gonna see how this goes because she already wants to fuck Trent. Or do you think they fucked before? They definitely have, I think. There's no way that that just like started then. Like he's definitely the kind of guy that's been cheating on her multiple times and especially with her. But again, like, why not establish that then? Because I feel like it could go either way. I'm I'm liable to lean more towards the fact, yes, they've had a history because Trent seems like that kind of D-bag. But why not build that in a little bit? Give us a little bit more character development. Well, that's the thing. You know, we're talking about all these things that are happening. And there are a lot of things happening. We are spending time with these characters, but mm-hmm. not in a meaningful way. No, no. Yeah, we're having fun with them. But we're not learning anything about it. <laughs> we're having them. fun with it, but not having fun. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm I'm like a mirror. I don't hate this movie. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on with that camera? Like, where's that footage going? <laughs> All the things that she's recording. <laughs> well, and even are you surprised that we don't actually get to see some point where it's like Jason threw the camera or like we're not bringing that camera back and doing something memorable with it? It's the same thing with the bong. There's a lot of elements where, you know, there's things introduced that don't really have any plot significance. So, Hmm. Well, that's character development to to establish their stonerness. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Donnie's death sequence. Uh, This is a reshoot. So originally we were going to have him 
just high and have Jason come down the stairs stealing said gasoline. And apparently there was no tension. So they wanted to make this a bit of a proper sequence. So we get what we see in this film and it's fine. So you you can watch the original death in its entirety on the Blu-ray. I prefer it. Uh, I actually okay. think that the suspense they added, the quote-unquote suspense quote unquote. they added, mm-hmm. this sequence just feels very cheap to me. Um, whereas I think it's really fun when it's like, oh yeah, he, he's coming in, he's wearing a hockey mask, Jason walks down and he's like, huh, chops off his head, pulls the mask off and puts the mask on. I was like, okay, I don't mm-hmm. need suspense in this scene. This is a fun scene. But they wanted to add like just some hokey, tropey, it's very familiar what we yes. get. Like mm-hmm. it's something we've seen a million times in these films. Whereas the other one, it almost gives Jason a bit of personality. Yeah, it's not funny per se, but it's a little jokey. To it, it, it mm-hmm. balances, it toes that line. I think between comedy and horror really well. Right. Yeah. But they didn't want comedy. They wanted. I want to watch all these suspense. Blu-ray features now that you <laughs> like all the things you're mentioning. I'm like, that sounds interesting. Or like, I want to see how they did the kills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. But- I think this ties back to what you were saying earlier, Amir, where it's like, there's just too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Too many cooks. And yeah, I think you're also right in saying that they maybe overthought certain things and maybe not the right things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so Clay and Jenna uh, leave to go out for a walk because she's mad at Trent. So they decide, you know what, we're going to go around the other side of the lake. He tells us a little bit about how he feels badly about the way he left things with Whitney because of their sick mom. So I guess this is intended as backstory, but it also is kind of a scene I just sort of tune out. Well, okay, I like Jerry Padalecki. Jerry Padalecki has charisma. Mm Mm-hmm. Clay's just because his only thing in this movie is fine sister. Um, right. Ah, there's just not much. You're like, I, I remember more about his House of Wax character than I remember about oh, his character yeah. in this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I, I think there needs to be a little more because it is very just like one objective and that's it. <laughs> or push this romance between him and Jenna. Like make that come to something. Yes. Because mm-hmm. it would benefit her character as well, right? If she feels conflicted about the mm-hmm. fact that she clearly has feelings for this nice guy, but she's technically with some other guy. Have a yeah. scene where she talks about how her boyfriend hurts her feelings and she doesn't know if she wants to stay and be treated that way. Like have that dilemma mm-hmm. where she kind of grapples with it and she opens up to him. You know, that yep. could be interesting. A hundred percent. I mean, here's the problem with everything that we're saying. This movie is already an hour and 45 minutes because we had a 25 minute cold open, which still is the best part of the movie. (laughs) But then we also, as you said, Trace, only get 80 minutes with the quote unquote film proper. So we don't have time to spend with these characters. Uh, Movies today are all three hours. (laughs) Oh, my God. A three hour Friday the 13th movie. Ah! I mean, people would go see it, but people would see it. They could at least add like five minutes to the movie where it's all focused on character development. Like that that alone would do wonders, I think. So just what the fans want. I was going to say, and then the studio comes in and says, "Uh, can we get a kill scene in here? Because it's boring. (laughs) We need more stupendous tits. (laughs) There we go. Well, we're we are there, but it's not that pair. It's the other pair because we do get to see Chelsea wakeboarding. She is topless. And we're also seeing Chewie go tete-a-tete with Trent on beer pong, where we get to try and shoot the boot. Oh, I wrote 
ew, beer pong shoot the boot, gross, what the fuck is this? Oh, no, in all caps in my notes. <laughs> yeah, I would never, ever drink out of that shoe. Like that's, And he wasn't wearing <laughs> socks. I was like, oh, this is disgusting. Oh. Even my own shoe, which he does, which Mm-mm. I guess is supposed to make it easier. No. 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 <laughs> Why Mm-mm. would you want to ruin your shoe? Like, <laughs> and fill it with a liquid and then it's wet all day. I feel like these characters don't understand the inconvenience of like having a wet shoe or having oil all over your breasts and like having to worry about that like where's like the practicality of that (laughs) because because these kids are meant to be in their early 20s right like these are college kids they're not high schoolers yeah but like this is very clearly a party weekend they are not thinking things through they're in it for the short term it is it's fun 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 and i i definitely get that but the problem is, is that there's no moments of like genuine humanity. So all we get are these very stupid, very silly interactions. I think, Trace, that might be why Trent comes off a little better, because even though he's annoying in his need for controlling all of his friends, at mm-hmm. least it makes him somewhat grounded. Like we actually feel like we might know a Trent. Yes. Well, and he just gets more levels to play with. I mean, yes, he is constantly playing the asshole, but it makes the cathartic release of like him screaming like a girl when a body falls in his car, like much more, it hits harder and it's it feels more earned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we go back to the water, Chelsea wipes out, and this is when Nolan gets very unceremoniously arrowed in the head. It's not bad. Especially when, you know, Chelsea doesn't understand what's happening, so she nearly gets run over by the bow. Well, actually, she kind of technically does. <laughs> well, so this death is a new death. So originally, <laughs> Chelsea was going to say she, she's in the lake, she sees Jason, and he's there. But yes. he won't go in the water because Shannon and Swift have already established in Freddy versus Jason that Jason is afraid of the water, even though he does mm-hmm. go in the water. Whatever, it doesn't matter. It, it's fine, it's fine. But originally, um, Chelsea was going to be stuck up there like all day at night and eventually just drown. <laughs> I feel like, wouldn't you just swim to the other side of the lake at that point? Well, he was going to be following her at every point. Okay. Yeah. And and here's the thing. I get why they cut that, because it's not a slasher death. However, I I think it's a unique death. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. I I think it would be a... I would be really interested in the editing process. Like, how would you convey that in, like, two or three minutes, you know? I guess you could show a time lapse, but it just... It wouldn't pack a punch, I think, visually, so... Or or maybe... (laughs) I think you'd have to cut back to her repeatedly over the course of the day. So like every once in a while, I'd be like, oh, fuck, she's still out there treading water. Like, I think it could go very, very bad. But when I read that, I'm with you, Trace. I actually think this could have been probably the most memorable death in the movie. I wish they had tried it. It's almost tragic in a way, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've seen enough aquatic horror films where people are just stranded out in the middle of a lake or an ocean and they have to keep treading water and how exhausting it looks like i think you could find a way to actually make this very very scary well what would you do would you just tread water till you drowned or would you eventually go to land and just try to make it and run i don't think i would just cop out in the water and and drown i feel like i would risk it and try to run away (laughs) well yeah but 
sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think you would try to make a run for it and it wouldn't work. And you'd try that a couple of times and then realize, oh, I'm never going to get by him. Yeah. But also that you'd have to suspend your disbelief so broadly because what Jason is just letting everybody else have a great life shooting the boot and doing other things. Well, he's just hanging out here with Chelsea for the well, entire day. That's what I was going to say. I, I kind of like the idea of like just checking back with her throughout the rest of the film. And it's like she goes, oops, Jason's there because he's chasing someone. He's, he's just there. But I love the idea of it's like the last, the last shot of the movie after like whatever mm-hmm. the fuck we get, but everything's wrapped up where we just cut back to her and she's just at the bottom of the lake. Oh, no. <laughs> so mean. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Okay, so uh, Clay and Jenna are investigating these cottages that they discover and darkness falls. This is when they have to hide from Jason. Again, smart Jason. So he notices that there is a bag that Clay has left out in the open. This is when they run through the woods and Jenna stumbles on some kind of trap that rings underground bells. And this is when we discover that Whitney is still alive in the tunnels. What do we think about Whitney being alive? Eh, I don't know. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, it just, it doesn't like, it didn't make me feel one way or the other. Like, I don't know. It was a little yeah. bit of a surprise, but not, I wasn't thinking of it too hard that I was shocked by it. Mm-hmm. Again, this feels like one of those things where they spent so much time thinking about how did Jason live? How does he get around? How are we going to explain those kinds of things? And I feel like a bunch of people just look at this and either think the tunnels are flat out fucking stupid I don't agree with that. I think they're fine. But also, I'm like you, Amir. I don't really feel that strongly about it one way or another. So even when we're running around in them and we see, oh, there's a room piled high with dead bodies. And, oh, he's got a machine to keep that machete, you know, running smooth. I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Like, to me, with all of these franchise serial killers, whether it's like Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger, I think there's this element of like, magical realism where we don't think about the practicality or the like the Mm -hmm. genuine you know how does like he get this or how does he do that or how do they do this so like Mm -hmm. i don't think they really think of that like even the idea of like they're for some of them they're walking all the time but they always catch up like that's just like a given we don't it's just how it works yeah right the funny thing is in the game friday 13 like the one that came out on like the playstation xbox like uh six or seven years ago Mm-hmm. You had teleportation powers as Jason. <laughs> right. We just flat up gave up and he's bamfing everywhere. We've talked about this before. It's, I mean, because basically what happens is like you go in like a, the Evil Dead kind of zooming camera thing and you have a certain amount of time to go as fast as you can to get to where you want to go. And it quote unquote teleports you. It's like you say, oh, I want to go over here. I'm going there. Like you're still traveling, but you're invisible mm-hmm. and at super speed. Right. I didn't even okay. know there was a Friday the 13th game. So that's news to me. I'm- Oh my god! <laughs> but then again, I also don't play video deal. games. So. It's it's the game that kickstarted this trend of these asymmetrical multiplayer games. So you know, right now we have a Texas Chainsaw Massacre game, we have an Evil mm-hmm. Dead game, we're getting a Killer Clowns game, and it's all because of Friday Thirteenth. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was a big deal for a hot moment. For a hot moment. Learn something. Okay, so uh, Jason makes his way down here into the tunnels, so we get a better sense of the geography, sort of, but not really. Yeah. He 
gets upset because he's thinking about mom. So he tries to take it out on Whitney, but then he sees the locket. So once again, we're reestablishing, okay, there's a way to sort of control him if we can keep him calm using the locket. So Whitney has figured it out. This is how she stayed alive for the six weeks. We're doing Friday the 13th part two here, which I think it's a pretty cool idea. Honestly, I just wish I cared about this character more. Well, the problem is, is we didn't know anything about her from that first 24 minute opening. So when we see her alive, it's like, oh, she's still alive. Who is she? Well, yeah, we know she's Whitney. We know she's Clay's sister, but that's it. Well, there is a moment of dialogue between her and Mike in that cold open where she feels guilty about being there. And he's like, well, your mom's the one that told me to get you out of town and bring you here. Oh, sure. Yeah. And we've heard Clay talk about his mom and how he left it with her. But like, again, that doesn't give me anything about her, though, really. Yeah, like, it's not enough. Like, there needs to be a little more in the 25 minutes they had. (laughs) 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 Maybe give a little more. Now, Amir, this is the only big like plot deviation in the killer cut. Whitney escapes from the tunnels in this scene. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what happens? Does she, like, totally escape or she gets caught? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Jason ends up dropping Clay's bag and she finds the broken GPS and she's able to use the parts to pick the lock. And then she will run up during Bree and Trent's sex scene. And just as she makes it to the window to yell at them, hey, help me. Before they can notice, because they're having they're stupendous fucking. sex, Jason just runs up, grabs her, and brings her back to the tunnels. Okay, got it. But I like that addition, though. I mean, again, it adds, mm-hmm. like, you know, five minutes of screen time, because there's there's scenes interspersed throughout where you see her running through the woods and trying to hide. Yeah. It at least gives this character some agency, whereas in the theatrical mm-hmm. cut, she's just stuck in this tunnel until Clay comes and saves her. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I I agree. I also think there's something almost fatalistic about watching her get so close and then getting caught. And Mm -hmm. I like that part, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we cut back to Trent's cottage. This is when Chewie decides he's going to make a move on Brie because he has smoked the requisite amount. So he tries to entice her into a flaming shot. He burns his lip. He breaks a table. (laughs) Trent gets really mad. So we have to go out to the garage to find some parts to try to fix it. And unfortunately, this is where Chewie meets his doom. I do love him trying to give JC the hockey stick and going, it completes your outfit. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like that too. <laughs> yeah, we should also note, uh, this is the anniversary year, folks. 2024 is the year that hockey was apparently outlawed in Jason X. So Ugh. it's nice to have this reminder of, <laughs> oh yeah, back in 2009, we could still play hockey. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> um trace we should also note that this is week three in a row now where we have a set piece set to a swinging light joe i cannot like what what is this (laughs) (laughs) it's a fad (laughs) i do think this is like the least like memorable use of it yeah i think reanimator is probably the best but um yeah this is just synchronicity Mm -hmm. it's wild we did not plan this folks All this to say, R.I.P. Chewie, Aaron Yu, we love you. I would love to see more of this actor just doing things because he always shows up in these fun, slightly pot-oriented roles and then he gets killed and I'm like, why aren't you the star? Dude, he showed up in an episode of Evil a couple of years ago and I was like, oh my god, Aaron Yu, what are you doing? Right? Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, clearly we know enough that he's charismatic that we want to hire him for these films, but then we don't give him anything to do and we don't make him a star. He maybe, was... maybe I'll cast him in one of my movies. And... Please <laughs> well, do. I'll keep <laughs> the... him in my back pocket for things. I mean, he's done like a bunch of things since this, but like the last like big thing where he had like a regular gig, he was on that CW show, The Tomorrow People. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. He was, I think, like the second sort of build. Yeah. So. I mean, it's like him and Robbie Amell. And yeah. some girl named Peyton List, who I see her name all the time, but I never know who she is. Oh, yeah, she's uh, she's not very memorable. <laughs> yeah, he's done a lot of TV mostly, it seems like. Right. Yeah. I mean, steady paycheck, so makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about them stupendous tits and the perfect nipple placement. <laughs> this is probably the most outlandish and ridiculous scene in the film. I feel like apart from topless wakeboarding and all of the things that people don't like about the movie, this is the scene people remember. For sure. Do y'all like this scene? Oh, and actually, Amir, uh, this is also longer in the killer cut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I can only imagine what they showed in that version. It's just a thing for me where it's so ridiculous. Like, I, I can see someone watch this and be like, well, this is really exploitative, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. It's so silly that it works for me. Like, I think this is one of the funniest scenes in the entire franchise. I would agree. Like, I, I don't think I watched this and felt like, oh, this is, you know, like being super exploitative of like women. I feel like they were both in on the joke and it was just so ridiculous. And she even mentions like the nipple placement later on where it's like, she's making fun of him. So it just felt super <laughs> campy to me. Like this was just a ridiculous yeah. sex yeah. scene. It was so like over the top. But it is, not to bring it back to fun, but it is a level of fun that that feels out of place with the movie around it. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of wish more of the movie was like this. (laughs) I agree. I think it's like pick a lane. Like they were talking about wanting to be like really gritty and like this and that. But then they have like all this like fun and camp parts. Like (laughs) I think if you picked like one or the, if you went all the way Texas Chainsaw Massacre or all the way camp, it could have like, that would have been really interesting to see. So yeah mm-hmm. yeah this, this is tricky because i mentioned obviously we've got jared padalecki in this film if we want to go the supernatural route we had jensen eccles doing his my bloody valentine remake the exact same year so clearly mm-hmm. we were doing horror films on hiatus that movie has that infamous you know naked oh. trucker thing mm-hmm. And that one, I remember when, Trace, you and I covered it for our audio commentary, I came down pretty hard on it because I felt like it was really quite exploitative, even though clearly it is also meant to be a bit of fun. Mm -hmm. This one, to me, hits that mark way better. As you said, Amir, it does feel like both actors are at least in on the joke. The movie has a sense of playfulness. It it seems to know that this is very stupid, and obviously it's meant to be titillating for people who like naked women. But yeah, there is a sense of, of fun, playfulness about this that I appreciate. And I'll confess, I didn't realize that when I first watched this in the theaters in 2009. I was just like, this dialogue is atrocious. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's not good, but yeah, I, I'm sure it now you're good. like, that's the point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't the think point. they were being serious. I feel like they were all laughing their asses off but, as they were reading the script, being like, this is mm-hmm. so ridiculous. Like, it, it, I think everybody was in on the joke. But I'm glad that you brought up My Bloody Valentine, because I do think that the overall tone of that movie, Naked Scene Excluded, mm-hmm. is kind of what I would have liked more in this movie. I would agree it, with that. 
there it, it is a serious film but it's also it also has an element that that perfect balance of seriousness and camp to it yeah well it also has much better set pieces like i know yeah. we've talked at length about how the ending doesn't really work for you but that movie has that fantastic supermarket set piece which oh yeah oh, i just chef's kiss yeah there's a lot of good stuff in that movie this movie doesn't have anything like that like your your kills and your set pieces are so important like and yes. that's like a make it or break it for me when it comes to like especially slashers like it's it's so pivotal like where it's taking place especially the mm. conclusion so yeah and i think maybe that's why and again as i've already said someone who does like this film quite a bit it ranks i think fifth or sixth in my ranking of the entire franchise the most disappointing thing to me is that these kills just aren't that memorable in a, in a franchise yeah. that is quite often defined by its kill scenes mm. yeah yeah, it's the reason we show up. We like Jason and we want to see these quote unquote teenagers slash actual 20 somethings get brutally killed. Mm -hmm. I will say holistically, though, this film has a few like memorable moments, more oh, yeah. so than uh, some of the others in the franchise. Like I can definitely look back at like the sex scene or like Will Afford wakeboarding or, <laughs> you know, like there's a certain parts where it's like they're so ridiculous that like you remember them, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that, like, that's one thing that this film has going for it is, like, it's more memorable in a lot of ways, too. Just not mm -hmm. the kills, per se. <laughs> Everything yeah. but the kill. Except we keep talking about the breasts, so maybe we're just like, oh, tits out, and that's going to be memorable. <laughs> straight men, let us know what your thoughts are on this film. <laughs> Jeez, yes, please, straight men, get in touch. Straight men and lesbians. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so... We do have uh, Jenna and Clay coming back because, of course, they have realized something is horribly wrong because they saw a decapitated head back at the cottages. So they rush in. They call the police. I'm not going to touch on anything more about Lawrence and his masturbation. And yeah. I think that's meant to be funny in the same way that the sex scene is. I just feel bad for this actor because it's such a nothing role. I know, but I do think it's really funny when he apologizes to the to the model in the magazine. <laughs> I just think it's funny because she's like not even like remotely unclothed. He says he's like he's like winter edition. <laughs> and she's also 32 years old, and you can tell he's treating her like she's about a 55-year-old woman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't do any better than this. <laughs> okay, so uh Clay and Jenna call. Jenna is trying to pound on the door to let Trent know, hey, something serious is going on. They continue fucking. He tells her to get the get to get the fuck out, and I'm like, "Girl, knock down that door." Mm -hmm. Yeah, like catch him in action. There is no response to, "Hey, why did you have the door shut? Hey, why is Bree covered in your jizz? Like, why do you both have sex smells coming off of you?" <laughs> None of that. <laughs> I think she knows. Like, I think he's oh, fucking her as a fuck you for going off with that guy. And he's right. like reveling in it and she knows and I think she's done with him. She's just focused on like survival probably at that point. <laughs> You're right. And Joe, what you said earlier, you know, that we don't have time for her to have this like talk heart to heart with him or whatever. But it feels like a disservice to this character and it makes her seem mm -hmm. a lot stupider and weaker that yeah. nothing comes of this cheating. True, with true. Her. Like I would have at like, least like, been like, fuck you, like we need to go, but like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah exactly or like, like punch him or something like we'll we'll talk about this later when we're both safe but in the interim fuck you we're done yeah, yeah. just it's 10 seconds folks you could have put it in there no t 10 seconds is gonna put us into an hour 47 minutes we can't oh, do that can't. <laughs> just can't have it no <laughs> 
Okay, so Lawrence goes off to the garage. He's armed with a walk and a fire poker. This feels very Jason Takes Manhattan, right? Where we're up on the roof, we get a couple of licks in against Jason. It maybe seems like we might be able to best him, and instead we just get horribly axed in the back. Yeah, this kill's okay. I do like it when he finally, like, pushed it through his chest. I think that's good. Sure. Mm Mm-hmm. But... I just think the walk, like... You really mm-hmm. think that's going to work against, like, I, I don't know. I would have picked a different weapon personally. <laughs> well, I think that's meant to be the shield and the fireplace poker. Is Got it. Okay. We're thinking medieval, like, <laughs> a little yeah. noted. A shield. A shield is medieval. <laughs> <laughs> well, when do we see it? is uh, medieval. <laughs> sandals and swords epics or, yes, medieval. Hmm. He's a knight. Uh, awesome. He's practically a knight, really. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we're up to the moment where Jason, quote unquote, tries to lure them out using Lawrence before he fully kills him. And when it doesn't work, that's when we just fully get the axe through him. So, sure. Yeah. I will say I want to praise a particular shot. So we have Trent on the ground floor of the cottage when he says, oh, I think he's trying to lure us out. And then the camera cranes up to reveal Jason is in fact waiting for them on the roof. Mm-hmm. And I really like that shot. Yeah, I do it's too. Good. I think it's it's very well crafted. You can tell. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Bree is the next one to go. We get this uh, okay shower curtain scare and then she gets impaled on the stag's head in the bathroom. You know, it's interesting. So this is one of the kills they go through and they're like, oh, she gets it the worst. She gets suffocated. Then she gets impaled on some antlers and then she gets shot a bunch of times. (laughs) She's already dead when she gets shot a bunch of times. Fuck off. I was going to say, I was like, I don't give a shit. She's dead. And we don't even like, again, this is just me. I kind of want like her like intestines to come out on this, on these antlers whenever he impales her or something. Oh my. Oh wow. You really don't like her. (laughs) No, I... (laughs) <laughs> Again, make this kill more. I don't even think we see blood on her whenever mm-hmm. he, she just gets thrown on it and boom, she is out. Of, well, she's not out of the movie. We'll have her body to throw out later. But still, right. like th- this is a cool idea of a death. Um, also one that has been used in another Friday the 13th film. Uh-huh. And Silent Night, Deadly Night. Like we've seen people get thrown up onto a dead deer before this yes. is not the first time yeah. well, and, and, and i love when the... trent like thinks he shot her so to cover his ass he's like oh she died she's dead like he killed her. <laughs> i mean we, we only have about five more minutes left of trent and i think everything van winkle does from here on out is like comedy gold yeah i would agree it just starts spiraling <laughs> I'm I'm actually really glad you mentioned that moment, Amir, because I was trying to figure out if it's meant to play as comedy, because it's weird that no one ever finds out about it. So it feels like it's a weird in-joke just for the audience. I feel like that was an intentional joke for us to laugh at with his character. I would mm-hmm. say okay. so. Like, because I definitely clocked the humor and thought it was funny. So like, all right. Yeah. I can see it. I mean, I I thought it was such a, a bizarre moment, but I didn't laugh. So I feel like if you did, then <laughs> to okay, me, it that was shows like intention. he's just such an asshole that oh, even yeah. when he accidentally right. shoots someone, he's going to try to distance himself from it and like blame it on a serial killer, even though like she actually died from Jason. Like he probably mm-hmm. thinks he shot her and he's trying to like, you know, like remove himself from it. And it's so typical of like Trent in this film to do that. So, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. 
So we're down to three. They make a run for it because they think the killer is upstairs. And we try to get into the police cruiser. This is when Bree's body gets tossed through the windshield and we scatter. So Trent goes by himself, whereas Clay and Jenna run off together. Uh, Trent doesn't last long. He loses the gun in the woods and then he doesn't know if he can trust a tow truck driver who nearly runs him down and that's when jason gets him with the machete and then we impale him as the tow truck drives away okay but in the running for my favorite line of dialogue outside the stupendous tits thing and the nipple placement um when mm-hmm. he loses the gun and drops it in the water he actually gun, says where are you where the fuck are you gun <laughs> <laughs> I felt like that was really relatable content. I could imagine myself saying something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the creators of this movie think that this is the quote-unquote best death in the film because they had to save the best death for the quote-unquote worst character in the film. No, it doesn't work that way. To be fair, I kind of looked down at my phone for a second and looked back up, and I was so confused about why he was so stuck fast. on a tow truck driving away like i didn't know mm-hmm. like i missed like one second of it so the theatrical cut is a little bit edited down we have a lot oh, more okay. shots of him get, when he gets impaled on the truck um there's a couple more right. shots of that i mean again it totals maybe four seconds of screen time but it's enough to where you get more of the impact um got it right I think I like it because he's still kind of alive as the truck drives away. So, like, you get mm-hmm. a little bit of it there. But as a death, like, yeah, like, oh, machete stab impaled in a truck. Like, yeah, it's, just, it's just not the most creative, mean death this no. character deserves. I agree. I think, no. like, the world is your oyster when coming up with deaths and creative kills. Especially, mm-hmm. like, with the budget that they had, probably. So, I just think, like, you could have done anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and considering how much the movie clearly wants us to dislike this character, he is the most reprehensible of the human beings, right? Yeah. Because I'm not considering Jason a human being. He's like a mystical entity at this point. Well, not in this movie. No, no. no. (laughs) I would have like shoved the camera like down his throat where it like opened his whole like body and then on the tv in the bedroom you would see like the insides of his body from the video camera or something like that like using the camera like using some like really really like violence and and i don't know or chop his dick off yeah right like there could have been something Mm -hmm. it's a big missed opportunity and as you said amir it does feel very fast and i recognize we're trying to build up to the climax we still have a long way to go ironically enough but this feels like it should have been so much bigger and more memorable you want to give the audience like a good reason to kind of cheer for when their favorite character dies like (laughs) right Okay, so now we're down to just Jenna and Clay. So uh, if you're watching the extended killer cut, we will get to see them run by Lawrence's body in a hot tub, as well as Chelsea down by the lake. If you just watch the theatrical cut, you will not see that. We end up getting to the cabins. This is where they hear Whitney screaming. So we do go into the tunnels as Jason gives chase. This is where Jenna bites it. I'm going to say unceremoniously once again. All but right. Jenna, do we know you? Hmm. Genuine, uh, this is from Danielle Panabaker. Because um, she had an alternate death before this scene. Oh, okay. They could not get a location that worked. There was a real cute line about, mm, I don't know if I should use cute to describe a Friday the 13th film. She laughed, catching herself. 
I said, maybe on our next date, we'll do something a little more romantic. And then my character gets it after this big fight involving a fire extinguisher and all of this crazy stuff. When it actually came to shooting the bus scene where Whitney and Clay, like, when she dies, she crawls out of the bus. Right. They decided I couldn't be at the bus. So they had to come up with another death for me, which was me getting stabbed while crawling out of it. Yeah, because this stuff, let's be frank, sucks. Oh, yeah. It's it's so underwhelming. She just dragged away, like, ugh. But I think her character is also just, like, a little bit too bland anyways, so... The depth sort of matches I, I, the character. <laughs> I just kind of hate that, like, the, the, the narrative, you can see the wheels turning in the narrative here. It's like, oh, we got a new girl in the cast. Let's get rid of the other one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there can be only one. It's the Highlander principle of, of final girls. Yeah. I also would have loved to see to more someone, chase sequences not... for this film. Like, I th- mm-hmm. I'm i a big lover of chase sequences. Oh, yes. I think like Sarah Michelle Gellar's scene and I know what she did last summer, for example, it's like yeah. really long and elaborate and there's all these set pieces and, you know, like it's, it's super fun. And I just, I didn't feel like there was anything like that in this film. No moments of like prolonged tension, even like, even when mm-hmm. the girl goes to pull the shower curtain, it just didn't have like that element where it lets the moment breathe. And like mm-hmm. you sit in that tension, like it was, it was too short. Um, so there was moments where I wanted more of that too. Amir, I'm really excited for you to finish Friday the 13th Part 2, because the last, like, 15, 20 minutes of that movie is basically a chase. Just chase. Ooh, yeah. okay. I'm excited. It's quite yeah. good. It's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> but you're you're not wrong. This movie, I feel like it sounds like I'm always coming down on music videos, but it's just because they really changed the way that a certain generation of filmmakers, and I think studios by proxy, look at the way we should edit to make things have action and momentum and that kind of stuff. And this movie feels like, okay, we need to keep cutting. Like we can't have that tension because it's not scary. We have an audience who expects things to be quick, quick, quick. And as a result, it's like, okay, well, no chase scenes. It's just going to be crawling through a hole. We can all see what's coming a mile away. And oh, wow, she got a machete through the chest. But that's really cool. Because Marcus Nispel comes from music videos. Like, that's what he's he's made hundreds of music videos. And Mm -hmm. but again, go back and look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, like, it's obviously edited more than like a a movie made 10 years prior. But. That movie doesn't have the rapid editing. I, I wouldn't say this is much rapid editing, but yeah, it, I, there's more breathing room in Texas Chainsaw Massacre than is in this mm-hmm. movie. And that could be the result right. of a lot of stakeholders in this film, you know, and there's it's a it's a different complicated beast compared to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, yeah, because I think with Texas, isn't it like one family that has the rights or like there's like one stakeholder? Am I wrong? Oh, I I think Texas Chainsaw. I mean, no they idea. don't have rights issues like this franchise does. But if you look at like the last three or four entries in the franchise, it's a it's a who's who of who has the rights for which film in that franchise. Well, I think right. Netflix owns the rights permanently now. I think they like purchased the IP of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That may be. Yeah. So any future sequels will like come out on Netflix, basically. Jeez. Which is wild because I am, I mean, Trace, you and I talked about the new one, mm-hmm. and I'm still surprised that we haven't even seen an announcement that they're thinking about making another one. I thought they were. I thought we got the announcement like later that year, but like no news on it since. Mm, Nevertheless. Okay. We will find out soon, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so uh, we need to escape. We're now down to just brother and sister. So we've got a bunch of okay stuff. You know, we're trying to escape out of this overturned VW bug. Clay gets his face smashed through every window because it's a Friday the 13th film. Whitney kicks Jason in the face a bunch of times. It's all okay. <laughs> it's I, I confess because I don't care for these characters that much i mm -hmm. i just kind of lose interest for the last You're 10 minutes out, aren't you? yeah. Yeah. I, I felt yeah. the same way i think it's interesting like the the third act of horror movies are so dependent on liking the characters and yeah, having right. enough character development that you're invested in like their survival so at mm -hmm. the beginning in the second act like they're kind of fun right it's like all these like set pieces where you set up the tension and then people start dying but that third act is so crucial on like really liking the characters so yeah yeah because you're down to just a couple typically so if you haven't put enough investment in there then it's like even in this case i look at it and i say oh i i still like jared padalecki yeah. But I don't give a shit about Clay. So, yep. you know, when the rain comes down and we're battling Jason in Donnie's barn here and we've got Chekhov's fucking machine going again. Like, yeah, some of this is it's OK, serviceable action. You know, when Jason gets hoisted up, but he's such a thick boy that he falls right <laughs> back down. It's a neat moment. Yeah. But when we see the chain go into the machine and he starts to get pulled back, it just feels so expected and unexciting i'm just ready for the movie to end well and we're, we're redoing the ending for part two you know where she's she's finally like pretending to be pamela and i'm like eh, okay mm -hmm. like yeah and but i mean it doesn't I, even I, go on very long though no 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 it's not um, obvious enough either like you kind of know she's doing it but it's not like she doesn't do much of it you know mm -hmm. i don't know like two does such a good job of having her and and we even get that visual where we see jason's point of view and, and it's going back and forth between mama Voorhees and Ginny, and like we spend the time to do that whereas here she's kind of like jason i have this locket and he grabs the locket and gets pulled into the shredder and you think okay sure okay <laughs> well but the movie's still not over <laughs> still not fucking over here's the thing were you two disappointed that we don't Halloween ends this bitch and just have Jason go fully fucking through? Because when we start to chop off his head and it just stops, mm -hmm. I did not understand why we weren't going whole hog here. Yeah, um, well, you, you can't bring back a pile of meat. And that's what it feels like. Oh, okay, baby. It's our franchise starter. Mm -hmm. We want to Texas chainsaw this bitch. We can't kill him. And you're just like... No, no, you have to because you set this in motion. Yeah, they also like if I were one of the survivors, if I noticed it stopped before it ate at his head, I would make sure to finish the job, you know? Mm -hmm. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, they drag his body to the lake. Mm-hmm. Sure so, do. Rather than just leaving the barn, hightailing it out of town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Six foot four Jared Padalecki and this tiny Amanda Rogetti drag Jason's head, like 500 pound corpse, <laughs> to the lake. <laughs> yep. That's like sure a do. CrossFit class. Like, <laughs> I mean, I know I said I didn't care about log like logistical inconsistencies, but this is the one that gets me where I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> Even, like, if we had him on something with wheels, right? Like, we're wheeling <laughs> like him down wheel in the barrel. dark because this motherfucker's heavy! <laughs> yes, that's it. 
as they like wheelbarrow him into the the lake, he joins <laughs> exactly. Willa Ford at the bottom. <laughs> I was gonna say that's when we see Willa Ford's body. <laughs> <laughs> and then cue oh i want to be bad as the end credits <laughs> so mean but see that would be at least funny yeah you both would. have homework to do you need to watch her music video after this promise okay i because i've never heard this song it's so good yeah. i love it <laughs> stay tuned for the outro we'll we'll plug it in there how's yeah, that a, a lot of listeners are agreeing with you amir they are oh, i'm sure are. i'm sure <laughs> I mean, the reason that they cast her is because they thought they were going to be able to attract people who were her fans to come and watch this movie. Or they wanted to piss off Nick Carter's fans. I don't know. Were they broken up at this point? Who well, could she I like, didn't have a song since 2001, though. And this came out in 09. Oh, so she was an actress. She was trying to cross over, I Maybe. guess. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. Anyway, yeah, Jason goes into the water. We get a final jump scare. Nobody saw that coming. Ugh. Boom. Set up the franchise. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. It's sad. I would have I would have happily watched more of these. I think that this one is fine. I would have liked them to try and be a little more adventurous. But you know what? It's sad to me that this is the last one that we've gotten and that it has been 15 fucking years. I know. Is there any development on anything with like a new one or... Just the TV show, just Brian Fuller's. Which, which even then, we don't have much information on. I feel like they announced it over a year ago. Well, they announced it, and they were just setting up the writer's room, and that's when the, the strikes. strikes. Yeah. yeah. They, they've they announced that they're back in the room, so we probably will get it next year, yeah. 2025, I'm predicting. Um, But yeah, I'm in agreement with you. Um, I would have glad... I mean, th this movie is fine. It, it is right in the middle of the pack with this franchise for me. But like you, Joe, I would have happily watched a sequel because at least now that we, whenever we do something like this and we're reviving a franchise, we have to get all this shit out of the way, which this mm -hmm. film did. So I would have been right. intrigued to see where they took this. I'm sorry. I would have been intrigued to see where they would have taken this in a sequel. I hope that they would have taken bigger swings. Um, right. But who knows? Yeah. Who knows? All right, everyone, that has been Friday the 13th. And before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Amir, let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram primarily. I'm AmirMichael89 and Slasher is uh, now streaming on Deku. You can check it out there. Excellent. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. If you want to chat with other listeners, join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you want to show us some love, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash HorrorQueers. If you subscribe today, you will get 286 hours of Patreon content, including this month's new episodes on Hannibal Season 1, Episode 2, uh, No Way Up, the Sharks on a Plane movie, Suitable Flesh, Lisa Frankenstein, and to coincide with that Diablo Cody film, our audio commentary for the month, as I already said earlier this episode, is on Heathers. Heathers. Joe. Yes. Oh, God, we've got a heavy one next week. What are we discussing? <laughs> Oh my gosh, Trace, I'm so excited that we finally get to cover this one because I think this is the last title in our editorial series that we have not covered on the pod. Folks, we're going all the way back to the genesis of Horror Queers. We're covering our first Pedro Almodovar film, 
We are talking about the skin I live in. Ooh, I love this movie, but it is a yes. rough watch. <laughs> yes, it is hard. We're going to have a ton of shit to talk about, but ooh, I can't wait to revisit this. Yes, and also everyone, major content warnings for sexual assault on this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it is an Amadovar film, unfortunately. <laughs> so, uh, All right, everyone. Well, until next week, we can cross out Friday the 13th. Indeed, and cross out horror queers. I wanna be that way.